0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast.
1: You're now tuned into the Pod Awful, Awful Channel. Pod Awful.
2: Bi-quarterly women's social club. Dazed and convicted. New party radio. The show came. The devil's advocate. The projection booth. Awful flips. Pod, Pod
3: Awful. Awful dot net. net. I have
4: control of your TV set.
3: you're a souvenir?
2: Make it all be a terrific nightmare And will you see a nice person come out of this shower I want you to know that I am a true believer There are no atheists in this shower I'm praying now, Lord Do you hear me? If you hear me Don't say or do anything Good Okay, Lord coming out now and I wouldn't care if I gained 20 pounds as long as I'm white here I come Lord ah! Jeff, 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 there's a negro in your shower it is not a negro yes yes, yes it, is, it is I saw him call the police he'll kill us I am not a negro I'm me
5: if this is another one of your jokes
2: now look out there. I'm coming out of this shower again, and I want no screaming. You hear? Now there's a logical answer to this, but we'll never find out if I dry up into a prune in this shower. Now I'm coming out again. You hear? Okay? Yes. Okay. Uh, now hand me a towel.
6: Welcome to The Projection Booth. I'm your host, Rob St. Mary, and joining me is the ever-affable Mr. Mike White.
0: This podcast has been rated X by a Mike White jury.
6: And joining us, extra special from the Bay State, one of the badasses of outside-the-cinema, Mr. Bill Byforce. Who the hell do you think you are, Rob? I have no idea. This week, we're looking at the 1970 film Watermelon Man from director Melvin Van Peebles. The film centers on a white, suburbanite, bigoted insurance salesman named Jeff Gerber, played by Godfrey Cambridge, Living with his wife and two kids, it's a real Aussie and Harriet-type existence. Well, Gerber is a racist. He's not burning crosses, but he's kind of a cultural bigot, making jokes on stereotypes of black folks and giving little attention to the news of revolution and riots taking place in the streets at the time. His wife, Althea, much more interested in the news. But the big news arrives one night when the bigoted Jeff Gerber wakes up to find out he's now a black man. Watermelon Man was based on the novel The Night the Sun Came Out on Happy Hollow Lane. By author Herman Rauscher. The film was Van Peeble's first to be produced out of a supposed three-picture deal that he had with Columbia, but that soon ended when he decided to go independent and created a year later his groundbreaking Sweet Sweet Backs Badass Song, which helped usher in not only the so-called black exploitation genre, but independent African American film. Now, Bill is our guest. When did you first see Watermelon Man and what did you think? Well, I've, I've never seen it. What?
0: <laughs> yeah, i never seen it. Sorry.
6: You lie. You reviewed this on the show.
0: No, that was that was in the days when his co-host didn't watch the movies, and then Bill decided to not do it either.
6: Ah, okay.
0: All right, no. Um, so the
7: Watermelon Man. This is actually this is a pretty good story that goes with this. Um, most of you guys know my my co-host uh, Chris, who uh, him and I used to work together at Blockbuster when we were just wee little lads. I think he was like about like eight, like nineteen or twenty, and I was like only like sixteen or something. And um, the Watermelon Man was one of these random VHSs that we had in the store that didn't really like fit because there wasn't Blockbuster didn't have like a massive selection of like the black exploitation films or you know any type of. Not, I mean, maybe calling this a cult film might be a little bit of a stretch because of its um, kind of background and stuff. But, you know, there wasn't a lot of that stuff in there. It was much more your mainstream fare. But the Watermelon Man VHS, they had it at Blockbuster. And I remember putting movies away one night and I pulled it out. And, you know, it's got a kind of a silly title. So you don't really know what to expect from the film. And then you'll know, read in the back. You see the story, you know, White Bigot wakes up one morning black. You're like, this is going to be a riot. Not so much. <laughs> It's uh not a comedy. But I think it's um it's 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 a special film in some ways. You know, what they do, you know, obviously I'm not getting ahead of myself, but you know, what they do in the film, maybe not everything works in it, but it definitely affected me at that time when I saw it and was kinda like this was not what I expected it to be. You know the title doesn't speak to what the film is. The real explanation that they give you in the back of the box doesn't really speak to what the film is, and you know, kind of where the film falls in the you know, if you want to look at the greater pantheon of African American cinema, and also you know, the black exploitation genre, which it also doesn't really fit into. Um, it's it's kind of a it's kind of a you know it's a different little film, and we, we went and recovered it on outside the cinema, probably like oh like I don't know maybe three years ago. 3 maybe even 4 years ago was um something I told Chris I'm like hey let's go back and revisit this cuz you know I watched it at the when we worked at Blockbuster and I was like dude you got to watch this and he watched it and then so kind of revisiting it now and I've seen it I think this is the fourth time fourth time I've watched it uh and it's it's kind of one of those films that it changes The older you get and also the more you see it, but you know we can get into that later, I guess.
6: What about you, sir, Mr. Mike Blight?
0: I saw this one probably for the first time in around 96, no, probably more like 98, 99. Had it on VHS, bought it forever ago, and it was one of these that I never watched. And then I was researching um, some stuff to do with Paul Williams and found out that he was in The Watermelon Man. And I said, well, hey – i got to watch The Watermelon Man and see Paul Williams. And I would not recommend watching The Watermelon Man if you're just looking for Paul Williams films, because he is in there for about 10, 15 seconds at the most. Uh, But at the same time, I had wanted to watch this one for a long time. I can't say that I'm a big Melvin Van Peebles fan, but I was always intrigued by the idea of this film and intrigued in kind of his... His cinema. Um, I had seen Sweet, Sweetback's Badass Song when I was in college. Um, wasn't really that impressed with it, and so I wasn't sure if I was going to like this, though I was curious to see what he would do with a, a bigger budget and you know studio backing that he had with his film. And yeah, it's it's not necessarily one that I... I go to that often. I find that it's got a lot of interesting ideas. I'm just not sure if it's really executed as well as it could be.
6: I think that I'm going to end up being overly kind to this film compared to both of you because of when I saw it, why I saw it, and how I saw it. And this may be on our site in the bio section. I can't remember if I wrote about this or not. But when we got our VCR, when my dad bought the VCR and brought it home, the first two films that he made me watch – were Watermelon Man and Clockwork Orange. I was nine years old. <laughs> no, no joke. And the reason why he wanted me to watch these and the reason why he wanted to see these as the first films that he saw on his TV at home with his VCR was that when my dad was in Fort Benning, Georgia in 1971 for basic training, He went out with a group of guys, and they saw both of these movies. They saw Clockwork Orange, and he saw Watermelon Man, and hadn't seen it since 1971. It was now 87, 88 maybe, and um, decided that he wanted to revisit them, and he wanted to show them to his son. So I saw both of these films, and I didn't know exactly what the hell was going on with either of them when I watched them when I was about nine, but I knew there was something going on. Now, Clockwork Orange obviously has gone on to be – One of the films, like if someone asked me, you know, what it's like your top 25, that one's in there. Yes. This one, too, is kind of close. And I think it has a lot to do with the fact that my dad shared it with me. I saw it when I was young. And there are things in it that remind me of not only um, people that I grew up with, but the community in which I grew up in. So there are certain things in this film, even though it was 1970 when it came out, 70, 71, um, they were still alive and well in Metro Detroit circa the 1990s when I was in high school, just the attitudes and the various you know even some of the wording that came out of people 's mouths and, um, and and I think that 's why I ended up relating to it uh, as well as I did, and um, I still consider it a, a great film I, I think it 's flawed, you know, um, but there are certain aspects of it that I really like really like, and there 's certain parts of the story of the creation of the film that are um, just phenomenal to me that here was a guy who basically pulled one over on the studio and and you got to respect that.
7: I just can't believe Clockwork Orange. made I mean, you watch it when you were nine? <laughs> Not <laughs> even is- like you were like, yeah, I want to watch Clockwork Orange. You were like, all right, yeah, let's watch like Superman or Star Wars. And he's like, yo, we're going to watch the watermelon man and we're going to watch Clockwork Orange and you're going to like it. <laughs>
6: <laughs> it's true. It's true. Yeah. And, and
7: it's awesome and awful all at the same time. <laughs>
6: it, it is. I, I think it explains uh, various aspects of me and my love of film. Oh, it
7: explains a lot with just your love of
0: film. <laughs>
6: <laughs> yeah. So it's. Uh, I got to thank my dad for that one.
0: <laughs> so do you want to run it down the, the plot a little bit here? Yeah.
6: So let's run down the plot. The plot is, uh as I was talking in the beginning, Jeff Gerber, insurance salesman, living the Ozzy and Harriet life in the suburbs with his two kids, one of which actually played by a very young Aaron Moran, who is um, you know, your big Happy Days fan over there, Mr. Mike
0: White. That is true. Joni, she's here. It's before she falls in love with Chachi. That's right.
7: Happy days.
6: (laughs) And um, he's not interested in what's going on in the news. He's, you know, basically his boss calls him a smart ass. He's always making jokes. Um, Every day works out, races the bus, always has some cute remark to say to the black bus driver played by Durrell Martin. And we'll get more into that in a bit. And works in insurance, basically just living the quote unquote American dream until he uh, wakes up one day and he's black (laughs) and how everything going forward from there, he has to kind of figure out, can you really, you know, live the same life in a way that you used to and at the same time has to come to eventually, I would have to say eventually comes to some sort of understanding within himself that he has to accept his condition because it isn't going to
0: change. Yeah. With this film, it feels like it's kind of, there's not a whole lot of stuff going on in the film. There's a lot of times when I was watching this where I was like, it feels like it needs more. Like the whole thing with him chasing the bus in the morning or racing the bus, I should say. It's like they do that twice in the film. There's once when he's white and then once when he's black. And, of course, when he's black, it doesn't necessarily work out as well. But it feels like it just – I don't know if it needed like another bus chasing scene or just needed a little bit more complexity to it. Because sometimes it feels like there's just not enough stuff going on um, in the movie. I don't know if you guys agree with that. I mean, I'll I'll agree with that, Mike. I think,
7: you know, when – when you boil down the plot, it's it's. I mean, it is extraordinarily simple. The plot is he is a white bigot who wakes up black one morning. Can he live with it? And like that's that's really it. You get. I mean, you get the little kind of things. And like I think the first, if you could talk about just kind of like the first like twenty five minutes of the film, because he doesn't actually wake up black until what about about a half hour into the movie or so. Yeah, about then. So they they really they they work hard to try to set up his everyday life, and you know it comes across as you know. He's doing well, and, you know, they've got a home, and they've got a family, and he's got a decent job, but there's nothing interesting about him other than the fact that he's, you know, he's racist. And he's not the, like... You know, like the -the over-the-top racist guy, you know, burning crosses on people's front lawn or anything like that. But he's just kind of like that mentality of, you know, the 1960s, you know, 50s and 60s during, you know, when there was so much racial unrest, especially in in the inner cities. So first off, what you really need to do when you sit down and watch this movie is you have to put yourself in the right frame of mind. Because you watch this movie with a 2014 frame of mind and everything seems really super silly because – you know although there's still racial unrest in you know in the world and in this country it's not it's not like it was in you know the 60s you can't look at it with that you know mindset because it just comes across as like well this is ridiculous like when he races the bus as the white guy he's just the annoying guy and they do a very good job of making him the annoying guy cuz he you know he gets under your skin
0: very quickly oh yeah he is the biggest asshole oh, yeah. in the world and it's not
7: doing anything like outrightly bad you're not like oh fuck this guy he's like doing blah 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 It just he's just that annoying guy but then when he you know he chases the bus buses the black guy and it's the first time he's really left the house since he's since he woke up um woke up colored is that racist to say colored <laughs> when he <you wake>,
0: up african-american <laughs> we're talking about a 1970 film so it's okay so, when he when he wakes up as a negro
7: can i tell you um if i might digress because that's what i do uh when we reviewed this on Outside the Cinema, I think we we dropped the N word a couple times in the review related to the film. And it's the one time we got a bad review. I think either, I think in the UK iTunes store, they were like, these guys use racy language and even drop the N word on their show. And like we used it in contrast with the movie. So I won't use that word again.
0: I won't I won't say it. So, yeah, of- I'm really afraid when we in- review Boss Knicker, what's going to happen. Oh, oh,
7: right there. Oh. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I don't know what that is. <laughs> <laughs> it was supposed to
7: go like this. Anyway, but yeah, so you have to put yourself into the mentality, if I can read myself back in. You know how, you, uh, you, do you guys have any idea how difficult it is for me when I come on with you guys to like work my way into the projection booth pantheon and not just step all over everything you're saying?
0: It's okay. Well, we appreciate your
7: candor. <laughs> yes, that's what it is candor. <laughs> we'll call it that.
0: Be more than three times Aren't you concerned
8: with a civil rights issue?
2: Yeah, sure. Most people are just crazy. They think that at any moment a Negro is going to hit them over the head with a watermelon and steal their high school ring. The of the
8: rioters. I think white people have to show greater interest and understanding how
2: else look i'll fear your bus will be coming by soon i like to get my
7: head start makes a contest out of it uh so you get it yourself into in the mentality of you know racial unrest in the inner city in the late 60s and you can kind of see you know it makes sense because when he races the bus um you know the second time and people it, they they really make a a big thing of making it seem like everybody thinks that that, you know, the African-American men that are in the city are just stealing everything because it's like, well, did anyone see this guy steal something? And they're all like, no, but he must have. Like, that's a quote. So yeah. he, it's not like that anymore. So it's I, I find myself the more I've seen this movie and, you know, the more time that's gone on, I find it it becomes less effective in this in what they're trying to give you. Because, like Mike, like you said, they don't give you anything else. It's definitely of its era.
6: And the, the character, like I said, the only equivalent to that kind of character that you would have, and it would be a few years later and be on TV, is like Archie Bunker. Kind of character, but just the the way the film is put together in terms of uh, when he wakes up and and sees himself in the mirror is black. There's this like color filter thing. There's jump cuts from time to time. There's uh, text on screen and all this. That's very much of that era, like psychedelic or even like borrowing stuff from the French New Wave in some way. That makes it feel dated. And not just sort of the social issues and things that they're talking about, but just the way that it's put together. So it is very much of its era, late 60s, you know, because um, I don't even want to consider it 70s because it came out in seventy. So I would say that this is very much a film of the late 60s. And you can tell based on a lot of the things that are used um, to to actually structure the piece.
0: Yeah, just the the way that the movie is put together, it just everything just seems so shrill to me, like Jeff Gerber hardly ever speaks in a normal tone of voice like when he walks into a room it's just like and he's not even it's not even racism a lot of times like he'll walk into the insurance office and just start calling all the women in the room sluts and whores
2: sluts, sluts, all of you sluts next thing you know you'll be smoking cigarettes Hello there, Erica, you gorgeous hunk of Sweden. Norway. Norway, Sweden, what difference does it make, as long as you're a blonde? <laughs> are you? <laughs> Just curious. I mean, uh, how many girls are really blonde all the way? Collars and cups? <laughs>
5: Excuse me, Mr. Gerber,
3: but I must get back to my desk.
2: A dollar if you walk fast and stop short. Two dollars if you trot, five dollars if you run... And $10 if you're really
0: a blonde. So it's like, what the hell, man? This guy has no filter whatsoever. And then going in and insulting his boss and talking about how he's got bad breath. Gerber, I am not going to mince words.
3: You have turned in a very disappointing month. Well,
2: I must say I agree with you, but considering the time of year. Look, I'm just pointing out it's a subproductive month. I'm not asking why. It's income tax time, and though people die, they seldom buy. Gerber. Look, I may as well come right out and say this. It's time somebody told you... I've got bad breath. Bad breath! you got something much worse than that. Offensive perspiration, midriff bulge, uh, dingy dentures, Asiatic crud. That's exactly that kind of a remark. You, Gerber, are a smartass. A number one king size
3: smartass.
0: Does this guy ever turn off? I mean, he's such an unpleasant character... And then even when he switches and becomes this black guy, like he stays that asshole, I think all the way through the rest of the film, I don't really see him ever kind of having this change of heart. Like maybe at the end when he's in that hotel room, maybe he kind of has a little bit, he's, he's toned down just a touch, but I'm not even sure then. And then you know talking about kind of the the way that the film is is put together there's times where the music is just screaming at you i mean you got Estelle Parsons and Godfrey Cambridge and they're just yelling at each other the entire time and then you have the music on top of it even louder than they are and it's just like oh my god it's like this cacophony of a movie for me sometimes but even with all that said i see that there are some good things about it. I just wish that there were more good things there because I, I love the idea of the tables turning on this character because he is such an a-hole, but it's like, I really wish that, he, I don't know if he could have been like humbled a little bit more and just really kind of seen a little bit more of why he it was so wrong for so long. But I just never really get the feeling that he has this kind of uh change of heart part that
6: i see where he has that change would probably be from the erica scene which is there's this girl who works in the office i think she's from sweden or something she has some sort of accent
7: she's from norway because you remember he corrects her or she corrects him
6: yeah so she has this thing for him because he's black and then he goes for it and then realizes that basically he's She's not interested in him. She's interested in him just because he's black. And that's when I think we start to see the change.
2: Beauty's only skin deep. And I want you to love me because of what I am. Not because I'm a Negro.
8: you very nice man.
3: Very courteous. You say please and thank you. So I like you. Then why are you leaving? Did I hurt you? Oh, my God, if I hurt
5: you
2: such a great bang, but you're a bigot, Erica. A big, blonde bigot. So thank you, but no thank you. You black bastard. You're really getting to it. My goodness, in no time at all, you'll qualify for American citizenship. Get out of here, you you nigger. Uh. By Jove, she's got it. I really think she's got it. <laughs> hey, And don't worry about running out of new words to call me, Erica, because in a few years, you'll know more.
6: And then there's this montage of him walking and he's supposed to like walking past these bars and various things. And then there's sort of that last phone call with him and Althea. And I think it's at that point that he kind of comes to the realization, but it's not as I guess maybe it's not as strong as you would uh probably want it uh mike
7: but it's also more realistic though i think rob because he was an asshole loudmouth when he was a white guy becomes a black man that he's not he's going to still be that same loudmouth guy so it's yeah is it a stark change no but i mean i i think it's realistic to look at it from he's still going to be that asshole and it's going to take something you know like the scene with the norwegian girl to kind of make him realize well maybe you know maybe i am wrong in the way i'm looking at things so i mean it doesn't work perfectly but i really feel that like i would i would find it less believable if it was like all of a sudden this like light bulb like oh i have to be a different person now because that's no one saying that you know all of the black guys in the film are all good guys cuz obviously you know just like there's you know loudmouth white guys there's loudmouth black guys you know there's it's it's i, I find it more believable that way
6: The other thing that I also uh, think in terms of the characterization, everybody being shrill or up or things like that, is that it is very cartoony. And that is often a way that satire is done, is to have these over-the-top larger characters and put them into these uh, larger situations in order to come out with with a a larger point. And I think – when we get to the end, and I'm going to tell you, I should have said this at the front. Spoiler alert: If you haven't seen the film, shut it off now before I end, before I kill it for you. Is to me the ending of the film, which he was supposed to shoot two different versions of. If if you know the story, supposedly he was supposed to wake up a white man again, and everything was just a horrible dream. Well, Melvin had said that, had said in interviews that he thought that was terrible, uh, terrible statement, and he wasn't going to do that. And uh, but he didn't tell the studio that and he shot his ending, which is basically when you get to the end, he's in this sort of self-defense class. And basically what you're led to believe is that maybe he's joined the Black Panthers or something. Absolutely. And 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 the whole concept is that basically if you were knuckled under, you know, it doesn't matter who you are uh, under what we're dealing with is basically what Melvin was saying that you, too, would turn into a militant. It's just what will happen. You know, you bred this. And basically pointing it right back at at the culture. And, and, and I think that that's probably a very uncomfortable statement for 1970 for the mainstream movie-going audience of this film.
0: I'm very curious about that ending because I wanted to read the original screenplay for this, and I wasn't able to get my hands on it or even the original novel. And what I ended up reading was a novel by Herman Rauscher called The Watermelon Man. And I don't know if it was a novelization – of his screenplay or a novelization of the movie. But it felt like really it was more of a novelization of the movie. I mean, like so many of the lines were verbatim. You get a little bit more of what's going on for Althea and some of her um, motivations and that kind of stuff. And it does end with this um, militancy at the end. So I'm like, well, I wonder if he went back and changed the novel to match what happened in the film, so I really would have liked to have read that original ending if it existed and saw what it was. I don't know if it was just Melvin saying that, or if that's really what it was. Because sometimes I don't necessarily trust Melvin Van Peebles.
6: The other thing with the political statements in the film, and I didn't realize this until I was just rewatching it recently uh, for the show, is that it not only attacks that that concept of what you were saying, but it, it also, to me, attacks white liberals in that in the film his wife is always you know she's like don't you care about the civil rights movement and you know and and shouldn't you be concerned for this and i i hope that they get all the, you know this this very sort of hopeful you know i i hope that they get treated better and all this stuff but when it actually comes to her home when she has to deal with race in her own home she freaks out and she can't handle it and so t- to me that is attacking white liberals who would be like, oh, yeah, well, of course, you know, black folks should be equal and they should get all their stuff, but they should do it over there." (laughs) It's basically um, at the same time, there's this level of separation, at least in terms of of the attitude, I guess, that that Melvin was saying at that time when it came to those who maybe were sympathetic to to their plight, they still didn't want to have to deal with them in their own home in that way.
7: You know what bothers me the most, I think, upon this rewatch and it didn't, I don't think it really struck me, the, the, you know, the, the first couple times I saw this film is that nobody really seems all that concerned that he was white and then all of a sudden he was black. It was just like there's no like even the doctor was just like, oh, well, I guess it happened. It's like nobody seemed really concerned to be like, what happened to the real Jeff Gerber? Who are you? What happened? Like, there's no questions. It's just like, oh, I guess you're a black guy now.
0: Yeah, I guess that kind of just goes to, you know, you have to accept it for the satire kind of thing, which is kind of tough, you know, when we're used to seeing, you know, at least some sort of of explanation or something, or I, I don't even know what it was, but even in a lot of satires, you kind of get some sort of you know, flimsy, at least, excuse. And this one, it's like, well, it could have been the sun lamp or the uh, health juice drink that he drinks down at the the bar or whatever when he goes in every morning. It could have been his, uh, you know, the the excessive amounts of uh, soy sauce that he either puts on his skin or he drinks. But, yeah, it's just kind of weird that they don't necessarily go into it. And I guess we're just really supposed to accept that i
7: mean i wish there was even just like a scene where like he wrongs somebody like or like a gypsy curse (laughs) like like a curse or just like you know well maybe someday you're gonna wake up black and see you maybe you'll see how you like it and like there's nothing though it just happens like there's that weird scene where he goes to sleep and then there's like they project the like flames on the wall and then and that's it
0: yeah yeah i would have liked mantan Moreland. To just be like, okay, you 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 try it out sometime, Mr. Kerber. Or like
7: seeing Scatman Man Carruthers roll in there
0: and be like, oh, I wasn't here. <laughs> <laughs> I'm <laughs> walking to my shoes. The
6: the thing that's funny to me is the first appearance of black skin in the film is Godfrey Cambridge's ass. That's <laughs> so, the I mean what? That's the first shot you get of when he turns black is him bending over and <laughs> going to sit on the toilet. So so Melvin's first shot of black skin when he turns into a black man is black man's ass
0: i mean i do appreciate that this was a columbia motion picture one of the the major studios at the day and that he could get away with this kind of it really is kind of a subversive film that's going out there and we know that you know late 60s early 70s were really this experimental time for a lot of the movie studios and i wanna say it was Columbia that had that whole deal where they were doing privilege by Peter Watkins and all these other really kind of cutting edge films back in the in the late sixties. But it's just, you know, really kind of hats off to them. I would say that this is much more of a successful experiment than something like a Myra Breckenridge you know, that we talked about a few months ago on the show.
6: Yeah, that was by Fox, but I think that this this film I don't believe would have been produced if it wasn't for Easy Rider the year before, because I think Easy Rider showed Columbia that they could do something that was, you know, not quote unquote traditional and they could take a chance that it would do well for them. And I, and my understanding was, is that Melvin had this film he had done in France. It did well at the San Francisco uh, film festival two years before. And they signed him up to do this film and they signed him to a three picture deal and this one, he just said, I can't, I can't do that ending, but I can't tell them that I can't do that ending. So um, I'm basically going to lie to them to do the film I want to do, which I think is 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 a great story. And um, and then he just decides to go off and do Sweetback. And they basically said, well, you did a film on your own without us. And you did all this stuff, so forget it and tore up his three-picture deal. And he basically never made another film that had any sort of impact uh, outside of those Basically, twin towers of his career being watermelon man and um, sweet sweetback seventy seventy one and then ever since then I mean he did a bunch of other things, but in terms of actual film film there there wasn 't anything that he 's directed since that that had the impact or got the attention
0: yeah and really watermelon man 's kind of become a footnote a little bit you know it' it seems so focused on sweetback it 's like even watching that um How to Eat Your Watermelon in White Company, it was just like, okay, and then he did Watermelon Man, and then, you know, like right into Sweetback, they just kind of brush over it a lot. I haven't seen um, Badass to see how much of a part Watermelon Man plays in that. I mean, it's kind of there just as a springboard, it seems like, but they really get past it quickly and... Go into yeah, um,
7: Sweet Sweetback is kind of that's that's the one that everyone looks at as the first real black exploitation film, and Watermelon Man, in my opinion, is a far superior film. I'm I'm not actually I mean I'm a huge you guys know I'm a huge black exploitation fan. But Sweet Sweetback is actually not a film that I
0: enjoy really at all. Yeah, I am not a big fan of that either. And I felt so bad when I watched it the first time. I mean, just a movie with that title, Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song, and with all the you know, the extra S's and everything in there. I was just like, this is going to be amazing. And then probably about maybe halfway into it, like there's a part where they're they're chasing Sweetback, which I know is amazing for me to say that because it's not like that entire Fucking movie is a chase scene. Um, and he's on top of a van at one point. Like everybody's just like, where'd he go? Where'd he go? And then he's on a van and they start playing that song again. And it was just like the entire audience just groaned. It was like, please, can we please just end this movie now? I think that that
6: movie, much like Watermelon Man, Sweetback is very much of its era and it was speaking to a certain audience. The thing that's funny about it was in 71 when it was released, it was only in two theaters. And the one theater that it really caught on on was in Detroit. It was Detroit that put that movie on the map and helped to make it some money and, and everything like that. And I think that when you look at Sweetback against 67, which we always talk about as Detroiters is, you know, the riot and, you know, the, it was the biggest riot in American history since the draft riots during the Civil War. And when you put that against Sweetback is here's a guy who fights the cops and wins you can understand why it did so well in the black community in Detroit in 1971. It just, in, in terms of it being a film that you want to go back and watch again, I, I don't know. You know, it, it didn't do it for me. I saw it once, maybe twice over, you know, my lifetime, and, and that may be about it for me. I understand the impact of it, like we've talked about before on the show with certain movies that when they were in their era, the impact they had and the lasting reputation that went from it, but not necessarily the film itself. The film itself is kind of eh. But in terms of what that film did for people, in terms of how it connected with people, how it influenced other people to go out and make their own movies, that's where the value of that is.
0: I will not disagree.
6: The thing that's funny about Watermelon Man when we talk about the production of it is that, you know, Godfrey Cambridge is in whiteface in the first. You know, as you're saying, half hour of the film or something like that. But the studio actually at the time when it was considering supposedly this original ending, which Mikey had been able to track down the original script, um, wanted a white actor to play the role and then do it in blackface. And to me, just that idea, even by 1969, 1970, uh, would have, I think, been horrifying.
0: It would have been soul man all over
6: again. I think it would have been worse than Soul Man because
7: <laughs> Soul Man doesn't even look at that and, like, it's like, yeah, okay, Soul Man, whatever.
0: Yeah, no, I have no problems with Soul Man. But, it, yeah, I can't imagine, like, they were talking um, Alan Arkin or Jack Lemmon in Blackface. Oh, my God. That's just just the sound of it is just embarrassing. Oh, it's terrible. Yeah. I think it would have been awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Especially if they would have affected like a black scent kind of thing and been like, hello there. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. Could you imagine Jack
7: Lemmon trying to talk like Jive? <laughs> <laughs> even Jack Lemmon 1970 trying to talk Jive would have been a frickin' riot.
0: It would have been like Gene Wilder from uh, Silver Streak. Yeah, exactly, exactly. You know? <laughs> only, only even whiter. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh. You know, and we talk
6: about the ending that you know he was supposed to shoot both both ways, and then he didn't, he only did the one, and it was too late for them to go back and and do all that stuff. I mean just pulling that off is is quite good, but there's other things that I really like in the film and and I agree with you, Bill, that you have to have a certain understanding of that era, you have to have a certain understanding, maybe even a film history in order to really appreciate this one and I know we'll be talking a little bit more about. Um, Mantan Moreland on our Bamboozled episode because he plays so prominently in the background in that but in here is Joe the waiter I think this is one of his last film roles before he died because he died in the early 70s and Mantan Moreland for those who don't know he was a a popular actor in the 30s and 40s and was basically given for lack of a better term coon roles where he played stupid ignorant you know really rambunctious uh, black characters with really bulging eyes and everything and if you see Bamboozled, there's a whole thing about Mantan in there. But in here, it's almost I, – what I really love about Watermelon Man is that I think Melvin gives Mantan Moreland a chance to basically um, talk back in some way to old stereotype that he had to play. Because the first time we see him in the diner, he's playing that sort of step-and-fetch-it character.
2: Morning, Mr. Gerber. Oh, morning, Joe. How goes it? Oh, OK. Any rioting in the neighborhood last night? Uh, I don't see any broken windows. Uh, <laughs> what's the matter? This place ain't good enough to, to loot? <laughs> <laughs> oh, Mr. <Guy. laughs> the, the usual Mr. Gerber. Oh, yes, uh, but make mine a double. I'm feeling a bit under par this morning. Oh,
4: one double Polynesian health juice
6: coming up. But when Jeff Gerber comes in again as a black man, and he talks to him just direct like he would anyone else, as opposed to
2: putting on this, oh, how you doing there today, Mr. Gerber? Kind of thing. Look, come on, hurry up with my health drink. I'm late as it is now. Slow your roll, man. Hey,
4: Jeff, you suddenly set a good example. A good job like you got. What's dragging you, brother?
2: I'm wondering what's uh, in this health drink. It is, I think, such a valuable
6: Scene for that guy. You know, it was to me, it almost feels specifically like Melvin got the script and said, Okay, this is the guy I want to get, and let me tell you why I want to get him because I want to give this guy an opportunity to basically kind of like give the finger back for all the years of, you know, having to play that kind of coon role in these um, movies back in the 30s and 40s.
0: Yeah, I was very glad to see him show up. It was very nice to see him. I, I really. I haven't seen Mantan Moreland in very many films, as far as I know of, other than Spider Baby, where he shows up at the very beginning of that. And that's really it, as far as um, what I know of his film work. But of course, he is the comedian who gave us the incredible line.
1: Shit, if this is going to be that kind of party, I'm going to stick my dick in the mashed potatoes.
6: And it's always that kind of party here on the projection booth. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Yeah, right. (laughs) And, you know, I didn't know that Godfrey Cambridge – I mean, Godfrey Cambridge is an amazing actor. I just – you know, recently, you guys on Outside the Cinema covered uh, Cotton Comes to Harlem, and we're talking about Cambridge on there. And he was just – he did some terrific stuff, and he was only with us for like 43 years, I think, before he passed away. And he was just in – involved with so much stuff. I I tracked down some interviews with him from like public television from years ago, some of his old comedy records and stuff, and this guy was all over the place, and he was just an amazing performer.
7: Yeah, he's great. Um, He's, I mean... With what he's given in this film, i mean he's he's the strongest part of it. I feel if this was you know given to another actor, if they had gone with like a Jack Lemon or somebody like like it wouldn't have had like as annoying as this character is, I mean, which is what his character's supposed to be like he makes it work i feel i I don't think somebody else i mean I don't know who else but but like he pulls it off, whereas somebody else I think would have made it too cartoony, like it's cartoony but it's like it's still like footed in reality i think you know as real as i guess a white man turning black could be but he's he's the the glue that holds this together it's quite possible that somewhere in your lineage
2: there is a negro strain you're looking at a strain negro right now doc if that were the case it would be apparent from birth not in your middle years and it would seem logical that your parents would uh, have said something to you about it They never called me a
0: nigger. No matter how angry they got, they never called me a nigger. He has a bite to him. You know, even though he could have been playing it kind of winking and stuff, you feel like there's this kind of underlying tension that's coming out from him. And I really appreciate that. And I have to say, it was really kind of freaky. And it still is freaky. Every time I watch this and see him, like, doing white face, it always just kind of throws me off because it's just like, you're looking at them and you're like, there's just something that that's right, but not right at the same time. And I will be damned if I can put my finger on what it is. And you know, cause the, the makeup job is amazing and it's just like, what, why am I not necessarily a hundred percent buying it? Is it just because I know Godfrey Cambridge is under the makeup or is there something else that's not going, you know, that that's not happening. And it's weird because, you know, the it, the whole table turning thing of black actors playing white parts is such a novelty that it's like when i was thinking about other movies where that has happened i could only think of like 3 times really and that was um, true identity with lenny henry white uh, chicks oh my god white <laughs> chicks is the chicks. most disturbing one it's the best movie ever top 10 all they, time white chicks they just look so freaky in that movie fucking robots yeah, like and I don't know if it's the those bluer than blue eye contacts or what is going on with that. But that is freaky. That's man. not even just white face, that's white female <clears throat> face. That's <laughs> Oh yeah. They look like those guys that dress up as uh as uh, female sex dolls. Oh Rob you should get on that. Oh <laughs> And the the only other ones that I could think of were the associate with Whoopi Goldberg, where she really is hardly uh, dressed up in that one, and not only is she doing um, a white uh, you know a white person, but it's also a white male. And then the other one is the famous Saturday Night Live skit with uh, Eddie Murphy as Mr. White.
2: Now let me get this straight, Mister uh, Mister White. you like to borrow fifty thousand dollars from our bank, but you have no collateral. You have
3: no credit. You don't even have any ID. Is that correct? That's right. (laughs) (laughs) Mr. White, I'm sorry. This is not a charity. This is a business. Uh, Harry, why don't you uh, take your break now? I'll take care of uh, Mr. White.
0: Okay.
1: Thanks, Bob. That was a close (laughs) one. We don't have to bother with these formalities, do we, Mr. White?
6: (laughs) What a silly Negro!
1: (laughs) Just take what you want, Mr. White. Pay us back any time, or don't. We don't care. <laughs>
7: Tell me, do
0: you know of any other banks like this in this area? Oh, and Chappelle used to do it on Chappelle's show all the time too. Oh, really? I never really watched Chappelle, other than um, the uh, oh shit, what's that guy's name? The Wayne Brady skit. Yeah, uh, he did. Um, he did Whiteface. He had two
7: characters, where one of them was a like a news anchor and then the other one was um i think like it was they was a, the racial draft skit i think mm-hmm. where he did it too and it's like it looks real weird on him too it's very off-putting
6: yeah especially when he would be the news anchor it was usually that was the best sort of version of it and it was always that uh overly affected white guy voice <laughs> too on top of it
7: with the laugh that always like <laughs>
0: Yeah. I guess really Eddie Murphy's done white guys a few times because now I'm thinking of him in – uh Murphy's done white guys. Coming to America. Coming to America. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And I I don't know if he was white in um, Nutty Professor or Norbit or any of those other ones. He was. He had that the, – the
7: I think it was the Nutty Professor. He played the white German guy or not the white Jewish guy in the like the barbershop, whatever it was.
1: Well, then you're a punch. The three of you. Three Putzes. You should change the name outside from Mighty Shop to the Three Putzes.
0: (laughs) Well, I I remember him playing a white Jewish guy and coming to America. I don't remember him doing that same one in in Nutty Professor, but it has been years. You're missing out on one of the greatest films of all time. Thank you, Mondo. (laughs) I thought that was
7: Last Action Hero.
0: Oh, yeah, that one too.
7: What? (laughs) All time. Yes. Weird. Right
0: Night? <laughs> <laughs> I was waiting for that. We're
6: going to take a break and play an interview with Estelle Parsons, the actress who played Althea Gerber in Watermelon Man.
4: They're 12 miles of bad road, and now they have a microphone and their own show. It's the Daily Grindhouse podcast, the official podcast of dailygrindhouse.com starring G. You tell that bitch who sent you here. How sorry I am, I can no longer be her friend. And the man called Perry.
2: I'm the one that killed Munden. whooped Tuesday, and put wins in the hospital. All the birds did a tell five, did not the birds spare Jones, son.
4: Reviewing the hits and the hidden from the world of exploitation, cinema, and beyond. Featuring exclusive cast and crew interviews. Past guests include John Carpenter, Robert Forrester, Brian Trenchard Smith, but still no Steve Gutenberg. (coughs) Willa. We'll get him someday. We promise. I mean, we promise. The Daily Grindhouse Podcast, available on iTunes, Stitcher Smart Radio, Podomatic, and of course at dailygrindhouse.com slash podcasts. The Daily Grindhouse Podcast. Tough films for the rough crowd. Got the goddamn message? Let's go to
1: work. <laughs>
7: Ah, That was good. Oh, he's got you crying over there. I'm good for the rest of the year. Nice. That was too much.
5: You know, I was looking for a little excitement, but I was worried about privacy. And then I found out about Vibrators.com. Vibrators.com has the perfect products for women and men and couples. They have helpful suggestions and information on how to make sure you get something just right for you. Plus, for over a decade, Vibrators.com has never played around with your privacy. While other coms make their money by selling your information, Vibrators.com never has and never will. And when you use the special code BOOTH, that's B-O-O-T-H, at checkout, you'll receive free priority shipping. On any order, that's vibrators.com. Get a little excitement in your life.
9: Life's complicated. That's why Dazed and Convicted has health and lifestyle tips to really help you with those day-to-day dilemmas.
5: The only way to stop the itching and burning and sedate the empty feeling is to wear a butt plug for an hour.
6: Plus relationship hints.
5: You know, Rafe tells a gal all she needs to know about a guy recipe ideas place thumbs anus scrotum and testes in the freezer
7: information on local community services you may not know about
6: a lot lizard is quite simply a prostitute who works truck stops and rest stops
7: and health advice you can
6: trust a lesbian humping with a man in the room running a camera and adding his man splash to the festivities can can help prevent breast cancer health and lifestyle on the Dazed and Convicted podcast at dazedandconvicted.com mm. How are you?
8: I'm okay. How are you?
6: Good. Thank you so much for taking the time. It was great contacting you. Happy people. to do it, yeah. Yeah.
8: So, I like to talk about the movies.
6: Excellent. Yeah. It's um you know, you've you've had such a such a great career, a lot of great stuff, and it's uh it's an honor to take a few minutes to talk to you. So thanks so much for taking the time.
8: The funny thing is that it seems to get greater the older it gets. So that's good.
6: <laughs> well that's good, you know, you never want to feel that you've peaked as an artist, I guess.
8: <laughs> no, but I mean the movies, like Watermelon Man, you know. Yeah. What kind of stir did it make when it came out? I don't know. I don't think much of a one. You probably know more about it than I do. <laughs> but, uh, you know, some of the movies, when you make them, you think, oh, my gosh. And then uh, years later, someone will meet you on the bus and say, oh, my Lord, I love such and such. And you think, wow. You know, they live on forever. Or a little while, anyway. That's great. I mean, in terms of however long the, the uh, film was, but now you don't even shoot on film anymore, so I don't know what happens to digital movies. What happens to them?
6: To start off, um, how did you first get into acting?
8: Oh, my. I started when I was just seven years old in a community theater group where I lived up in uh, outside Boston on the North Shore, on the North Atlantic, yeah, up there, Marblehead, Lynn, a community theater group in Lynn called the Tavern Players. Very good uh, amateur theater with um, everybody, you know, was in it. And uh, not everybody, but uh, people who were interested in theater were in it, and some of them were really good. And um, so I I was in that all the time I was a kid till I went away to boarding school when I was a teenager. And then I stopped for a long time, then I went back to it. Well, then I was doing musicals, and then I got tired of that, but I just kind of fell into uh, acting again. And now I do the occasional musical and a lot of acting.
6: In those early years for you, what was the struggle like in order to, uh, you know, get parts and get seen?
8: Oh, I don't know. You just find out what's going on, and if you think it's anything that might suit you, you whack on the doors and or find out who you know that and you could do it or you get into auditions you know because I worked in uh, there was a very lively summer stock uh, uh circuit in the uh, oh 40s and um so I I did that all the time I was in uh, college and a little while after that and uh, so I met just about everybody in New York so by the time I was serious about it I was very well connected down here and I don't think I could just sort of go to New York like you hear the story you know of people who go to New York to be actors I don't know how anybody does that that would be weird but I was just singing then all the time and that's a lot easier because you know if you sing well then you listen to people at auditions and you think wow I can sing better than that and then you do and then you get the job
6: when you finally did move down to New York and start to get into Broadway stuff, what was some of the early stuff you worked on?
8: Um, I, I actually came here by mistake. I was hired to be on the Today Show. I was one of the eight people who put that together when I was just getting started. So I was with NBC for five years. As a, I was a writer and a reporter and in the news. I was the first woman to be in there news department, doing reporting for the news department on the Today Show. And and then uh, I got married and had twins, and I just didn't like the hours on the TV, and so uh, I moved into uh, doing Broadway musicals.
6: When you moved from doing Broadway to doing film, was the transition hard, or did you have people that came to you?
8: Well, and- I didn't move from that. I was doing a play for Arthur Penn. And I really loved working with him. He had some rehearsal techniques that were experimental. I was very interested in, and it had a profound effect on my what I thought was my artistic development. So he asked me to do Bonnie and Clyde. So I said okay. But I had turned down a lot of movies. So on, on my my principal uh, job is not movies. I, my principal job has always been. On the New York stage, and I've never uh, moved away from New York or anything. I did the occasional movie, but it's never been my principal, my principal focus.
6: And you brought up Bonnie and Clyde, and I was going to ask you about that. You said that you had met uh, Arthur Penn, and and he wanted you in on the film. And wh- what do you remember about some of the experiences of actually putting putting that film together, doing the work?
8: Well, it was interesting because Warren and uh, Arthur. Warren Biddy, it was his first producing stint, you know, and every morning they fought, um, like, would argue for how we'd be all ready to shoot, and they would start arguing, and they'd argue, and they'd argue. I don't know what they were arguing about because we were just hanging around waiting to do our jobs, you know. And uh, the only reason I even paid attention to it was when Gene Wilder and Evans Evans came on to, shoot that scene where he was a minister and going and trying to uh, make out with Evans Evans um he said to me I knew him from the actor's studio here of course and he said oh my gosh Estelle is this film ever going to get made what is going on here and I laughed because we'd gotten so used to waiting for this half hour argument every morning that uh, we'd forgotten it was happening but it looked from the outside it looked kind of weird But I think it created a kind of energy for the film that was uh, really, really good. And also, of course, Warren uh, refused to let it die. It got terrible reviews when it came out, as you probably know. And uh, he was just determined that wasn't going to happen. And I think Joe Morgenstern, after a bad review, turned around and said, whoops, I was mistaken about that film. So then Warren just took it and ran with it when he got the good review and... He was a very hands-on guy, which I don't think is uh, typical in movies. You know, people sort of churn them out. If they have a bad one, they quickly move on. But Warren wasn't about to do that.
6: It was such a movie in terms of the cast and all the people that went on to do the various things that they've done and had the impact that they did. And. And you played opposite Gene Hackman, and this was one of his early roles. And what do you remember about working with him?
8: Oh, I knew him before we worked together on the stage. We were friends and colleagues in New York. And uh, Arthur wanted uh, another guy for that role. And we both knew a guy from the studio, and he wasn't available. And Jesse Hoffman and Gene and I were doing a play up at the Berkshire Drama Festival. And I said to Arthur, why don't you take a look at Gene Hackman for that part? Because I really loved working with him. We really worked together very, very well. We had the same kind of rhythms. You know, it's really tough when, well, actors together because actors have different ways of doing things, you know. So a lot of times your fantasy of what a sort of scene or play is going to be uh, doesn't turn out to be that way because the other actors got a different idea about it. But Gina and I seemed to have the same rhythms, and we had a very good time working together. So that was good. But he wanted to be a movie star, and I just kept saying to him, why do you want to do that? Why do you want to do that? Movie's a director's medium. You want to get back on the stage. But he didn't want to get back on the stage. <laughs> he wanted to be in the movies.
6: You said that when Bonnie and Clyde came out, it, it got bad notice, but you obviously got good notice and took away an Oscar. Oh,
8: I don't. I don't know. I don't know about that. I don't even remember all that. But uh, the the movie was just, you know. I think Buster Crowder lost his job at the New York Times because his review was uh, so bad, and uh, it didn't turn to be act turn out to be accurate. So I think he actually lost his uh, job as critic there because of it. I don't know. I don't. I don't. I I don't really remember about I hardly ever get bad reviews at anything so um, but you know I don't remember really what the personal reviews were I'm not sure there were any they were all about the violence weren't they
6: yeah majority I mean it was quite shocking for people at the time with the ending
8: it was a the time yeah yeah
6: but you had gotten good notice for it and and took away an Oscar so
8: yeah
6: that's quite something
8: (laughs) well it's good yeah
6: You know, after that, um, you ended up as we talked a little bit at the top about Watermelon Man. And I was wondering how that came to be. How did you get uh, cast in the film?
8: Well, um, Melvin, then Peebles, I guess, had seen me in Brian and I did another film, Rachel Rachel, the next year for Paul Newman. I got nominated for that for an Academy Award as well. And uh, Melvin had done a movie in uh, France, The Five Day Pass. So uh, he uh, called my lawyer for me to do Watermelon Man. And uh, he was the first uh, black guy to be shooting a film on the the studios out there. And, um, you know, they didn't have any money. And um, the script was kind of weird because it was Melvin, you know, he's real. He marches to his own drummer and so uh my all my all my advisors said not to do it, you know, because I had a very good career. I could pretty much pick and choose what I wanted to do, and uh so they said, "Don't do it, don't do it, don't do it, but I had this uh idea that I should support if somebody like that you know was trying to break into what was um uh, white establishment thing. I, I don't, I'm never in favor of that. I, I'm a big multiculturalist. So, uh, I mean, I'm a very fervent multiculturalist. And uh, so I thought, well, if Melvin wants me to do the movie, I'll do it. I met with him, and of course, he's a marvelous artist. And uh, I I very much like him as a, both as a person and as an artist. And so... I thought, well, if he wants me to do it, I'm going to do it. So I did it.
6: What do you remember? You said the script was a little odd. What do you remember about reading it and thinking about
5: your part?
8: I don't remember reading it or thinking about my part. I don't often do that. When I read a movie script, if I respond to the character, you know, right away, like, oh, I could do that, then I do it. I think if you don't have that response, uh, you better not do it because... In the theater, it's quite different. You you want to read something and say, what is this? How am I going to do this? Oh, my Lord, is it even possible? You want to do that in the theater because you've got four weeks to figure it out and, and get something right for yourself, you know. But in the movies, from my point of view, you want to think, oh, boy, that's something I can do. So... uh That's usually the the impression I have, and then I usually don't ever look at the script again until we're shooting. I'm not going to give that kind of uh, words on paper uh, very much attention because, you know, they're only words on paper. They're not literature.
6: What do you remember about working with Godfrey Cambridge on the film?
8: Oh, I loved Godfrey. Everybody did. He was wonderful. We lived about five buildings apart in New York anyway. it was just... uh, He was great to work with, and it wasn't an easy film to do. We were under so much pressure because of the suits out there and Melvin being black and all, so it wasn't an easy film to do, but we had a very wonderful time doing it. We shot it in a very short time. I don't know how much of that is even in what you read about movies, but we shot it in a much... We shot it much more quickly than most movies are shot. It was always bouncing in and out. The script, we never knew what we were going to do day to day.
6: Yeah, Melvin had said that he did it in something like 20, 21 days, something like that, like three I weeks.
8: Think so. yeah, yeah, four weeks. Yeah.
6: As for working with Melvin, you talked a little bit about him, but what do you remember about him as a person and, and working with
8: him on the film? Well, he's a terrific person. Of course, he's terribly smart. He's terribly interested in absolutely everything. I mean, as one can see from his whole life now, I think he went into stockbrokering for a while. He's done all kinds of wonderful stuff. And, of course, great composer and musician as well. So uh, it was very lovely to work for him. And he was very clearly under an awful lot of pressure. And he handled it with an enormous amount of grace and managed to uh, do things that nobody had done before and make a really decent film out of it all. So. I thought he was a terrific guy. I like him very much.
6: I was going to ask you what your thought was when you saw the film completed and out and what the reactions were that people said to you about it.
8: You know, I don't remember ever seeing it. I was very, very busy at that particular time. And I I don't remember ever... Yeah, I know I saw it, because I remember there's one scene in which I have curlers on and I'm on the telephone. But... Um, so I don't remember where I thought or when I thought I was so busy. I was, And I had uh, two kids to bring up by myself. So I don't, uh, once I've got the job done, I don't pay much attention to my movies because what's the point? Unless you just like to look at yourself a lot, you know, they're done. <laughs> they're done, they're there, they are what they are. So what What possible meaning could they have to you except sit there and one time you say oh I was good at that another time you look at it in another frame of mind you say oh I wasn't so good at that so you know I know everybody doesn't feel that way Greg Peck told me that I should go to the rushes because he learns a lot from watching his face and what he can do with his face but I'm not that kind of an actor you know I sort of try to inhabit somebody and then I just go for it I don't like to do a lot of takes I just get an idea what I should be doing and i try to go for it. and So one take is about as much as I want. If I have to do two, okay. And if I have to do 20, I can do that too. It isn't that. It's just that I'm, uh, I'm not interested in it. I'm inhabiting the person. And the person's going to do what the person's going to do. And then it's done. And then that's it for me. So I, I don't give a lot of conscious thought to, oh, do this with your face, do that with your mouth think about this, say things differently. I I really don't do all that stuff.
6: That, to me, sounds like very much someone who understands what they're doing on stage, and that stage and doing it in the moment is much more important to you than, you know, like you said, the minutiae of what a lot of film actors would do.
8: Yeah, that's good. I think you might be right about that, because, of course, it is kind of what you do on this stage. You have to get out there each time and just uh, be there and do it, so... And I know movies are not like that. That's true.
6: Beyond stage and, and film, you also had a long career in TV, and one of the longest-running characters that you had was um, and on Roseanne and was just wondering how that came about and what you remember about working on that show.
8: Yeah, well, I had, um, I had a son who was uh, quite young at the time, and uh, I wasn't working. I'd stopped working. Because he needed a lot of uh, help, he turned out to be dyslexic. But you know, before they get to school, you don't really know what these things are that are going on with kids. And so uh, I had stopped working. I had had uh, created a Shakespeare company for Joe Pat, the New York City Shakespeare Festival players, and I'd been working on that for a couple of years. And then I realized my son needed a lot of help, and uh, so I thought, well, I'm the one who Can give them the help better than anyone else. So I uh, stopped working altogether. I gave up the company and I just stopped. And then uh, they called me, did I want to be on Roseanne? And so I went out just to do it once because I could go just, you know, for a week. They do a show a week. So I could go Sunday night and be back like by Saturday, during which time my husband would have to you know, bond with his son, which, you know, busy people, men don't always do, particularly if they're high-powered lawyers in New York. So anyway, it, it was good. And uh, then uh, she would ask me to come on from time to time. Finally, they asked me to do what they call recurring, you know, really commit myself to go on. I was happy to do it because it couldn't really work in the theater. I didn't want to be out six nights a week, you know, when he was little like that and I needed to be with him so much and go to testing and, you know, schools and all that stuff. So it worked out great. I would just go out there about once a month and, you know, if I had more time, maybe I'd go out more time, but it really worked out great for me. It was just wonderful. And they were such a great group. I was so happy to be a part of it. And she was so appreciative of People who had uh, comedic gifts, which I have a really nice one. And she just thought I was one of the funniest things she'd ever seen. So it was great. It was really great. And if I said, yeah, I can't come this week, she'd say, okay, well, when can you come? And uh, I, I certainly didn't audition for it or anything because I wouldn't have done that because uh, I wasn't working at that particular time. But she just, you know, they just called up and said, Rosie wants you to come, so come. And it was I knew it was the number one show, and I thought, well, this is a great way to keep my hand and my profession and, you know, still be able to take care of my kids, so it worked out.
6: You know, we've discussed uh, quite a bit your love of theater and and you were originally cast in the, the first run of August Osage County and wanted to ask you about playing Violet, the, the matriarch of the family. And, and, you know, it's such a great play. And for you. Yeah. How, how, you know, when the play came to you or, you know, however it came to be, um, what did you think about this character? Where, where could you find her and, and play her?
8: Well, um, I didn't play it originally. The, those people in Chicago did. They didn't know what they had, you know. And then when it turned out what they had, and they brought it to New York, they had played in New York a year, and I had worked in Chicago with them. So two or three of the people in the play, I'd see them around New York, and they'd say, oh, my God, it's failed. you've got to do this play, you've got to do this play. And I thought that was about the craziest thing I'd ever heard in my life. So uh, I didn't see why I had to do that play, but then... Uh, the woman who was doing it didn't want really to do it anymore. She wanted she wanted to uh, do fewer performances. I think that uh, she perhaps was a sort of fragile person, maybe not in the greatest physical shape. I think she smoked, which, gee, smoking is so bad. People don't even realize how bad it is. And every day in the paper tells you how much worse it is. So... Just last week, I mean, all these other things is, that smoking is a part of terrible physical thing. But anyway, she decided to stop. So uh, they asked me because my friends were so sure I should do it. So uh, I, then I read it, and I thought, boy, boy, this looks good. She's so nasty, and she's so outspoken, and I love parts like that. So, so I got it in my yeah. head and did it wasn't easy because uh, most of the people had been doing it for about a year before I flounced in in that part. So it wasn't easy to get all the pieces together. I mean, it looked easy from the outside, but, you know, you've got to get them easy in the inside so you can really enjoy doing eight a week. So it was not an easy job at all. Very, very difficult.
6: I was going to ask, you know, what is the challenges and opportunity with a character like Violet in that play, for you.
8: Well, it'd be hard for me to say anything about it because I I walked into a play that was already. Uh, I I always thought that I was completely mimicking the woman who'd done it before me, and people would say, "Oh, Estelle, your performance is nothing like the woman who did it before you." But in my mind, I was just doing what I'd seen done, you know, which is uh, all good actors are mimics just by nature. You know, I go running, I, and I, someone runs past me, I want to start running the way they do, the way their bodies move and all that. Actors just love to mimic whatever they see. So from my point of view, I was just mimicking the performance I'd seen. I never really gave it much thought. But as you can probably tell, I don't give much thought to uh, what I do. It just sort of comes out of me when I do it. And uh, I watch it carefully. And uh, make decisions about it, but I don't plan. I never plan.
6: Those folks who are in New York or heading to Broadway would be excited to know that you have another production coming up, The Velocity of Autumn, and
8: wanted, oh, yeah.
6: wanted to know about this. Can you explain what it is and your part well, of
8: it? it really is. A, it really is an astonishing piece. That guy, I don't know. He has some kind of greatness in him, the playwright. I'm not really sure what it is. But he has some kind of greatness. It's very elusive. But he's written a play about a woman who's uh, sort of watching her own deterioration. And uh, he's written about this woman at age 20 and uh, in her 40s. And then when she's old, like it's sort of a former shell of herself. Like we get to be when we're old, you know. Well, you don't know, but someday you will. Um, And it's just uh, an amazing uh, the character is very, um, how do you say, feisty right from the beginning and very different and very much uh, uh, not an antisocial or unsociable person, but uh, her own uh, her own person, very comfortable being herself and, and exploring the world. Uh, I think I've never played a woman quite like her, which of course is uh, why I was interested to do it. And very feisty. I mean, not a fighter-type person, but very, you know, willing to stand up and see what the world is all about and take part in it, which uh, it may sound easy, but most people don't really do that. So it's an astonishing play about this woman watching her own deterioration and wondering what she's going to do about it. But she has a son who was her favorite son who ran away from home And never came back. And never came back for his father's funeral, which seems to be the uh, the uh, thing that you expect a person to come back for. You know, a sibling's funeral or a parent's funeral. And this kid never came back even for that. Really, I don't really understand what that kind of person is all about. Unfortunately, I don't have to play it. But anyway, he comes back. Because the other kids have said, you've got to come back. We can't do anything with this woman. She's going to blow up her building because she refuses to go to an old age home or assisted living or whatever the heck you call it, retirement community of some kind. So uh, she's going to blow up her building. She, In other words, she's either going to commit suicide or she's going to stay in her own home. So uh, they send for this guy who is really not up to the job he's just much too sensitive a person <laughs> they send him in and and try to get him to convince her to do something and so it's tough because she hasn't seen him in about 25 years and there they are stuck in the same room and she certainly doesn't want to blow him up just because she's going to blow up so it gets a little complicated but he says things that are um He deals with a subject that is, and there are probably a lot of subjects like this in life if we thought about them, but he deals with a subject that people don't talk about, you know, Uh, getting old, what happens when you get old. I mean, I guess academics are fond of trying to plunge into these things. It's not too much like person-to-person talk except to say, oh, you know, my bones are creaking or complaints. They sound like complaints. But anyway, it says all kinds of things that, that people don't say, and, and, and it's, a, it's a big crowd pleaser. I, can, I, don't, I don't know much more about it than that, but I do know that audiences love it, and it's very, very funny. It's probably the closest I'll get to real stand-up stuff, which is something I never did because I can't sort of just want to get laughs. I've had a, I worked a lot of cabarets reviews, and I, but I never, uh, I've had a couple of stand-up acts written for me, but I've never, never kept going with it because I can't get that interested in getting laughs. So I love to get laughs, but I have something more in mind I'm not sure what. So this is great because I think it's about as close as I'll ever get to. Stand-up delivery. Sounds weird, yeah. but there you are. <laughs> That's what's good about it.
6: As for the the play itself, um, is it in previews now, or when is it supposed to open?
8: No, no, we don't, we don't start until uh, April. Okay. We start on the 1st of April, April Fool's Day. It seems a little foolish to me, but there you go. And then the official opening is three weeks later. Sounds... We did it for uh, six weeks in Washington. Gosh, people couldn't get enough of it. They just loved it. And it's interesting because if you have a talk back with the audience, you know, like more than half the audience would stay for that talk back because they wanted to talk about the subject matter, about what to do with old people who don't, who don't want to go quietly away. And uh, it wasn't the old people that wanted to talk about it so much as it was the, the, the next down generations that have got to deal with old people. And and wonder what to do with them, you know? And they would tell story after story. And you could just see these people were just so happy to have a big opportunity to tell their stories. Every, it seems like everybody in that audience had a story to tell about a mother or an uncle or a sister, you know? It was really amazing. Yeah. It's a lot of fun.
6: Well, old age is definitely something you don't want to be cured of, as they say. You know, it's, uh, <laughs> I, I guess. I've never
8: heard that before. <laughs> you don't want to be cured of? Well, it's a. <laughs> what do you mean?
6: It's a stolen line from Citizen Kane. There's a, is
8: it really?
6: Yeah, Mr. Bernstein says, he goes, old age is the one thing you never look forward to being cured of, meaning that you're probably going to die. So nobody yeah. wants to look forward to that. So there's a lot oh, of.
8: God, I don't remember that. <laughs> Well, that's wonderful,
6: isn't it? Well, I mean, it's, it's interesting that you have been able to continue to, to be, um, you know, to do the work and, and to get these opportunities. Because we often hear, especially when we talk about film, that, you know, film is the young person's medium. It's like you get to a certain age and they don't want you anymore. And it seems that, you know, in stage, obviously with you, you can continue to do the work even, even as you get older.
8: Yeah, well, it depends what kind of parts are around, you know. You can play a wide range of parts if you get old the way I do because I don't look all that old. And there are a lot of actors in that category. You can play anywhere from 50 to 100, you know. I played a woman who was 100 years old about 15 years ago, this old Appalachian woman who was about 100 years old, this long, white hair. So, you know, actors can do that on the stage. But film is the director's medium, and I think it is true because I knew Arthur and I knew Kazan and I knew a lot of eh, a lot of good those old good directors. And uh, you know, I know when they got older because I would see them all the time, and I know as they got older, it got harder and harder for them to get their stuff financed or whatever, you know. And it was too bad because. A lot of people, Verdi did a lot of great stuff when he was in in his 80s. A lot of, you know, what I call creative people instead of interpretive have done amazing work in their 80s. But uh, I don't know if it's the same in Europe. Do you? Do Europe, do French uh, directors have the same problem?
6: I'm not sure. You know, I mean,
8: and in. I doubt it.
6: Yeah. I mean, for me, I I, know. I've always been a big fan of Louis Bunuel, and Bunuel did some of his best films when he was in his late 70s. So, yeah, you know.
8: Yeah. Yeah, he was wonderful. But I know that the guys here, they wanted, they had films they wanted to get done, and they just couldn't get them done. Yeah. But, you know, if there's a part, there has to be a part for you if you're an actor, you know. And, of course, if you're very good, your friends start dying There's not very many people I can tell you now two or three or four people who would play the part that I play when I die, you know that are still around. There used to be a short list of about ten or twelve i guess all through my life, but that is getting shorter and shorter and there aren't that there aren't a lot of old parts, but then again, there are a lot of old. There are a lot of parts. There are old parts in Shakespeare. There's Margaret, who's was ancient in Shakespeare. Old ladies in Shakespeare, old ladies and quite a lot of stuff. I've just been uh, lucky to have found these interesting things. I don't care too much to work just for the sake of work. I, I like to find challenging roles. Otherwise, you know, I direct things and put groups together and work on things and, I'm working on a female king leader now, last
5: couple of years, just for
6: fun, you know. Yeah. Sounds good. Well, thank you so much for taking the time.
8: Well, I'm happy to do it. What is this for?
6: Uh, We have a film show. It's called The Projection Booth. And each week. Oh,
8: it's a radio show.
6: Yeah. And each week we pick a a different film. And in February, one of the films we're doing is uh, Watermelon Man. So it was so great to uh, talk to you about all that.
8: Oh, good good i hope more people see that i think it was a good idea that film
6: I, I think it actually has more weight uh years later than maybe it did when it came out people didn't know how to yeah, react to it that's what
8: i was saying to you that i think that is true you know what other movie which i think is a classic even now dallas spires club did you see that yeah
6: yeah it was quite good
8: i think that's an absolute classic the way it's shot everything about it it's it's, to me, like a European film. I was really excited when I saw that. But otherwise, I don't have much to do with movies anymore. Yeah. Well, that's not true. I just did one with Al for David Gordon Green. I mean, with Al Pacino. for David Gordon Green, you know who he is? Yes, yeah. He's got his group down in Austin. I just did that. That was an experience. Yeah. A good experience. I really like those guys a lot.
6: Excellent and we'll be looking forward to that and and uh we will let folks know about uh, the velocity of autumn. The
8: velocity uh, of autumn. Yeah, good. If they come to New York, I guarantee they'll enjoy 90 minutes of their visit anyway. <laughs>
0: Thanks to Ms. Parsons for coming on the show. You can learn more about her latest work on Broadway coming this spring over at our website, projection-booth.com. So we're back and we're talking about Melvin Van Peebles' Watermelon Man. So we've talked a little bit about Sweet Sweet Back's Badass Song. How about other melvin van peoples works what other stuff have you guys seen and or enjoyed and i'm talking melvin van peoples not mario van peoples because i know we all enjoy everything that mario has done i
7: celebrate his entire catalog and none of melvin's (laughs) ouch (laughs) honestly i don't know if i've seen anything other than sweet sweet back in watermelon man
6: the see, titles at me, quick! I want to see uh, the, the French film, La Promission, but I haven't seen that. I've only seen clips of it. And then the only other thing that I remember that he did in this, you know, going back to uh, Mario, was they had that short lived TV show where they were a uh, father and son detective duo called Sunny Spoon. And that's the only thing I remember. But that's when I was a kid and I don't even remember watching it.
0: That's not a real thing. <laughs> it was a real thing. Was it Posse? Oh wait, no, that was that was Mario, right? Posse? Yeah. The um the one that you're talking about, Rob, I think also goes by the story of the story of a weekend pass, the the French film that he did. The only other one that I remember from him was one called Don't Play Is Cheap. That I remember we had that one speaking of uh Blockbuster, that was uh, at our Blockbuster, but I never Managed to uh, sit down and watch that one, even though Esther Roll is in it, and I celebrate all of Esther Roll's works.
2: Florida got a job,
0: a good job.
5: Oh, James, that's wonderful. I'm so happy for you. And I'm going to get my high school diploma. I just enrolled in night school.
0: No, yes. oh, James. <laughs> my name is Florida.
7: That's <laughs> the name of a state.
0: As opposed to Florida, rida every day, i didn 't know that Flo Rida was a man for the longest time because every time I saw his name, I was like, "Oh, somebody's naming themselves after uh, Esther Well, obviously you don 't listen to good music then apparently <laughs> no, I did not listen to the uh, the best the two thousand and twelve best albums or whenever he was around he 's still
7: around he if there 's a step up movie coming out, Flo Rida's going to have a song on it all right, let me Cause... ask you guys something. It, with Watermelon, Watermelon Man gets thrown into the black exploitation genre most, mostly just because I think of association and timing of release you know, do you guys feel that it deserves to be mentioned in you know, kind of like the black exploitation talk in history, because it's not a black exploitation film in, you know, per se you know, to like a, like, kind of going back to when you talk about the, the frame of mind to watch and like, if you sit down to watch a exploitation movie and you put on the Watermelon Man, you're going to be pretty bummed out because you're not going to get like Three the Hard Way or like Bucktown or like one of those like over the top stereotypical like action fests. But do you guys feel
0: that it deserves to be brought up in the conversation of the history of it? It's funny that you bring that up because I was watching Hit today, the Billy D. Williams film that we're gonna be covering next week. And I was watching that going, this really isn't a black exploitation movie at all. Even though it's got Richard Pryor, Billy D. Williams, and it's you know, chock full of action and stuff, they could be white characters for all I care, and it's gonna be the exact same movie. So it really didn't fit in that thing as far as watermelon man i'm not sure i mean obviously you shouldn't have a white guy playing the main role but i don't know if i necessarily consider it that and also it doesn't help that it's kind of funded by a major studio sometimes that kind of throws off the mix a little bit too
6: i the only place that i see this in a mention with exploitation or black exploitation film is as a footnote related to Melvin Van Peebles that's it it has nothing that is even remotely close to the genre that would develop in in the years following because as you're saying there's no action there's no no stereotypical characters you know he's not a cop he's not a pimp he's not a drug dealer <laughs> he's none of those things he's not a musician or something and to me it's just it's just a comedy that is a satire but it has w- like all of these odd tonal things that are in there, it's to me, it's making fun of sitcoms. It's making fun of the quote unquote American dream, you know, wife, husband, suburb, two kids. You know, it's it's got all this stuff in there that has nothing to do with what you would get in a black exploitation film at all.
7: Right, definitely. That's kind of how I feel too, because um, it was one of those things where, like, I saw th- I saw this before I ever saw any black exploitation films. Because, or actually, I might have seen shafts but you know. It was like I didn't understand why people had been like, you know, looked at it, looked at it that way. Even now, like if you go on to different sites and like look at the full list of exploitation films, a lot of times this will show up on there, even though it doesn't fit the fit the mold that was made. I mean, it and be it the mold, you know, isn't like, you know, the be all end all. But I just I've never understood just because it has black characters. And it, I mean, it, it, it does have stereotypes, Rob, but it's not those stereotypes of of those films that came later
0: on. I guess it's just kind of I would say a little bit of laziness and then also that this film really it doesn't fit anything very easily either, kinda of like Black Exploitation, just because it's it's like um it's a parody satire comedy kind of thing. It's like an unfunny comedy <laughs> most of the time, but it really is more of this like biting satire kind of stuff and really there's there's not a whole big uh, subgenre of just satire films.
6: Well, this is one of those films that I'm sure when it was done, the marketing folks looked at it and said, How the hell do we sell this? Right. It just, I, I, <laughs> good luck, you know, because it, it is not an easy and accessible film. It's not. You know, the one thing that we've talked about before on the show and the the one that I bring up is The Simpsons, for example, that it has this broad-based comedy. But then there are things that are in there that if you have a little bit more knowledge of things, you get extra stuff. And this is not one of those things. It's not that this has this big, broad, mass appeal comedy element to it, and then there's extra things on top of it. No, this thing is – it because it has so many mixes and so many odd different things in it, it's it's not an easy film, I think, for people to, to to really like. And even someone like me who likes it even thinks it's a failed experiment. And I think that partly the reason why it is a failed experiment is because he was making it in a situation that he knew he had to be kind of slick about in terms of order to get certain things in that he wanted. And I'm sure that the 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 script that we would see – if we can get, you know, an actual script of what he was supposed to shoot, it's probably markedly different than what eventually came out in terms of what we watch today.
0: It's funny to go back and look at the marketing material for the film because, like, the Norwegian lady is all over the marketing material. Like, there's um, a, a wider poster that has her in the foreground and. And Godfrey Cambridge is way in the back, and it's like he's working out. So maybe it's trying to play on the 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 final scene or something. And there's another one with Godfrey Cambridge in the front, smiling, looking at the camera. And you have the you know the busty blonde chick, who I assume is the Norwegian in this one, in the background by a pool. And then there are these posters that I kept seeing of. Um, him kind of half black and half white and the black half has a white woman and the white half has a black woman and it's just like it's almost like They were trying to market this as like, here's this dude that can step out and, you know, he's betting white women when he's black and he's betting black women when he's white. It's just like, what, what the hell? And that has nothing to do with this movie.
6: Well, when um, Troma released my film on DVD, they put two women on the front who were not in the film. So it's like just playing up the sexuality. It's like, okay, we got a hot looking woman, put her on the cover. I think that that was just basically the marketing department going, I don't know how to sell this. Well, we got a hot blonde, put her on, the put yeah, her on.
7: The I, remember, um, I don't know. A few years ago I was in Las Vegas and my wife and I were staying at the planet Hollywood hotel and, The one of the restaurants there is kind of like themed like it's it's also it's playing Hollywood. So it's like all Hollywood stuff. But they have a poster of this on the wall, like in the hallway to the bathroom or whatever. And it's the the one that's like the super political poster with the piece of watermelon with the American flag on it. And like I that's probably the most effective one. But even that is still kind of misleading because it makes it seem like it's like this big like American dream type thing. And it's such it's such a small little little piece that like i I agree whereas I don't know where they could have gone with this to really sell this film for what it was there wasn't I can't think of a way to market it that would have been appealing with what it actually is. It's a good film and I like the film, but I don't understand how i could, i I don't know what I would have done
0: with it either yeah no I would have been completely clueless and you know it's I like the uh, the uppity movie tagline that they had for it, and I think that's what was um they were smart to kind of play that up, but yeah, it was just – uh I wouldn't know where to begin to try to, to sell this to anybody. Even when it comes to like recommending it to people, it's like, well, it's this black guy and he turns white and – uh or vice versa and, eh, well, um then not a whole lot of stuff
5: happens. Yeah, yeah.
7: It, it comes across like it should be kind of like very slapsticky when you're like, oh, it's about this white bigot guy that goes to bed one night and he wakes up a black guy. You think, oh, yeah, it's going to be a really funny comedy and it's not funny.
6: Yeah. I mean, there are certain things that are in the film, like I said, growing up where I did in in Metro Detroit and the east side suburbs, mostly white east side suburbs, that I heard come out of other people's mouths or I knew that there were certain things like this, like the scene where the neighbors come over and try to offer him money to leave. Oh, my God. Detroit had a history of that kind of thing. I mean, Dearborn was notorious for the mayor keeping black folks from moving into the community. And when there was a black couple that moved into his neighborhood, he went over there and personally moved them out. And there was a federal lawsuit that happened because of that. I mean, you have the the case of Ossian Sweet, Dr. Ossian Sweet in the 1920s in Detroit, who he moved into an all-white neighborhood people didn't know. And they basically held him hostage in his house. And he fired out the house and he killed someone. And Clarence Darrow came to Detroit and, and took up his case saying that, you know, he was in this person got killed, yes, but it was in self-defense. So, you know, there's a history of this in in the community in which I grew up. And then hearing actually people say some of the things like what what Jeff Gerber would joke about, just make these sort of stereotypical jokes like, oh, you know, better watch him. He'll steal your class ring or your wallet or, you know, hey, you must be a pretty good dancer or just, you know, things like that. I mean – it, I, I think that's the reason why this film still resonates with me in many ways is because I had to hear that stuff come out of the mouths of people who I was around when I was a small child.
0: Yeah, I was totally reminded of uh, – and I know this was kind of a pre-U movie, Rob um, – reminded of A Bar the First Black Superman while I was watching this one because like when a black family moves into a white neighborhood, it's like news bulletin. You know, a black family has moved into this neighborhood. <laughs> we have to get them out. And just all the neighbors just – you know. It, coming over and and you know dumping garbage on the lawn and all this kind of stuff and it's funny because i even found a clip of uh godfrey cambridge talking about detroit and talking about you know like um he even kind of was poking fun at uh gross points you know i was like oh okay uh, even back then it was um what what do they call that it's like uh they, used, uh,
6: they had housing covenants rose point had housing covenants back in the 50s and 60s it was eventually it was sort of this quiet thing among realtors and people that would buy houses and it was an understanding that if you sold your house you would not sell it to this list of people which included blacks, hispanics, even jews at one point were not allowed to buy into the gross points so these were things that people set up amongst themselves in order to keep their communities lily white and like i said that scene where the neighbors come over
8: yeah you know our neighbors
2: well, the vigilantes.
8: I've got the coffee on.
2: Well, then, uh, what can I do for you gentlemen? Jeff, we may as
3: well get right to the point.
2: Everybody else does.
3: We feel your presence in the neighborhood can undermine the value of our homes, and we're
2: concerned. Yes, I've gotten a couple of your phone calls. Oh, that wasn't us, Jeff.
6: Shut up, friend. That is reality. That that kind of scene probably happened in Detroit,
0: which is funny because I think that's like one of the most effective scenes in the film. Yeah. Especially the guy's voice. Oh yeah. Now I think you've gotten the
7: great deal. <laughs> 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 you will, will. You have. You have to the end of the month to get out of the house. We're <laughs> sorry you had to be this way. That's you know that's something else that actually bugs me is his neighbors and stuff. They would have known him for years. And nobody, like, nobody's concerned or, like, anything. It's just like, oh, he's a black guy now. We'll get him out. I, I, oh, it's, bu- it's bugging me more now after this watch than it did any of the other times I've watched it. I don't know why.
0: I can see both sides of the coin with that one. I can see it as this whole idea of maybe this could have been an entree for you know a a black person actually live in the neighborhood because they knew him as a white guy and hey it's just you know different skin and then maybe everybody can kind of like go oh hey it's really jeff gerber at heart and you know let's accept this person even though he's black or i can also see the whole idea of it doesn't matter that he was white at one point as soon as there's dark skin in this neighborhood got to get it out you know must maintain the racial purity get this guy out of here and i guess that's Kind of, you know, the same thing with Althea, not sticking with him. I wouldn't have stuck with him just because he was an asshole, but her just, you know, not being able to handle that, sending the kids off and her eventually packing her bags and going, it's just like, wow, okay. You know, it's it, that's pretty harsh. And again, I think that's one of the other effective parts. It's like, there are too many times where it's just, it, it is a little too jokey at times. And I think the more effective parts are the quieter parts of the film. Mm.
7: And, like, some, another thing that's kind of bugging me is the fact that, like, she takes his kids and just sends his kids away, and he doesn't even really seem to care. No. Like, his two two young children that he, you know,
0: I would assume loves and wants to be there to see them grow up just lets them go. Yeah. No, I can totally see that as well. He, he really – they almost seem, though, like they're an annoyance to him through even the beginning part when he was white. It was just like, you know, oh, we want to watch you chase the bus. And that was pretty much the extent of their relationship with him. Whatever. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I just real quick I wanted to point out I didn't realize um <laughs> that uh K. E. Cooter or Cutter was in this when I was watching it the first time, and then I watch it this time and I'm like He's the guy that plays Jeff's doctor, who, again, just kind of dismisses Jeff out of hand. You know, he's okay with him for a little bit. And then after a bit, he's like, oh, you should really go see somebody of your own race kind of thing. Another, you know, good cutting remark going on there. I didn't realize, though, when I was watching, I'm just like, who is this guy? Who is this guy? finally looked him up. And he's the guy who plays, like, that floating head leader of the Armada in – the Last Starfighter. So I was glad to finally make that connection and go, oh, there's a Watermelon Man, uh, Last Starfighter connection. Praise Jesus.
6: Yes. Well, there's another connection to exploitation beyond uh, Melvin Van Peoples doing Sweet Sweet back in this, and that's Dervell Martin. And Dervell Martin – was in many exploitation films, including we'll be talking to uh, – we'll be talking – can't talk to him. He's passed away. But we did talk to Fred Williamson, and he'll share his memories of him on the Boss Nigger episode we're doing. But Durval Martin also was the director of Dolomite. So
0: mm-hmm. there you go. Not necessarily as good as the sequel, but I understand Dolomite does have a lot uh, some great stuff going on in it. I remember talking to you about that movie, Bill. Yeah,
7: you were on um, the Outside the Cinema episode of that. That was awesome.
0: It has best
6: performance by a boom mic in the history of a film.
0: Yeah,
7: because it gets more than one scene.
0: (laughs) It's everywhere. All right, we're going to take another break and play an interview with Joe Angio, the director of How to Eat Your Watermelon and White Company, and enjoy it, a documentary on the life and work of Melvin Van Peebles. (laughs)
9: I'm Joe Angio, A-N-G-I-O, and uh, I'm a documentary filmmaker.
6: As for making a documentary on Melvin Van Peebles, what uh, brought you to that idea?
9: So I kind of came to his story sort of through a side entrance. I'm friends with, uh, remember that part in the film where there's two guys who were these uh, stock traders? Mm -hmm. We were talking about about Melvin's life on Wall Street. Yeah. Those guys are both friends of mine, um, former roommates at different times. And uh, the one guy, Brent Nichols, he was actually Melvin's clerk on the on the floor of the uh, American uh, American what's the American Options Exchange, or American Stock Exchange. Oh my God, I'm always, I'm already forgetting this. First option, first black option shirt on the American Stock Exchange. That's his, his claim to fame on that. And um, and Brent used to tell me all these stories about about Melvin. You know, just you know, I, I knew of I hadn't seen this. Is we're talking. I'm going years back, like in the mid-'80s, okay? And um, and uh, I'd, I'd heard of Sweetback, but I'd never seen it. And so he would tell me all these stories about Melvin, you know, running with Melvin, and you know, the music he'd done, and the playwright, and he started running marathons at 40, and just on and on and on. And so I finally, I watched Sweetback, and I'm sure, like, you, like, well, I, it's funny, I actually read the on your site like a little bio of, you, of your dad showing you... Um, um, what was it? Was it Watermelon Man and, uh, and the Clockwork Orange? Yeah. Yeah. So sort of like me seeing Sweetback, was, I probably had the same reaction as anyone who saw Sweetback for the first time, just like, what the fuck is this thing, you know? And so I got intrigued with him. And then from hearing all Brent's stories, I just kind of started, you know, he, he became alive in my mind as a potential uh, subject for a film. But it wasn't until many, many years later, more than ten years later, that I actually met him and you know proposed the idea to him. So I'd been sort of stalking him from afar for for like thirteen years, and much of it you know, pre Internet age, so I couldn't even you know find the stuff online. I was like, when I first moved to New York, I was going up to the um, uh, the Performing Arts Library up at Lincoln Center and getting information there, and then just whatever I could find on him, and I kind of built this dossier. Before um, and had this whole proposal for a film before we finally approached
6: him. You talked a little bit about the process, how you had to build it. You know, imagine a world before the internet. Wow. Uh, <laughs> um, you know what was the process like when you first sat down and said, "Hey, I, I'd like to do this this film on your career and and all the the odd things you've done over your life."
4: Well,
9: it, it, it it's it's kind of interesting in a way because I had you know as I just described to you, I had built this you know all this background of research for so long but i i hadn't i hadn't reached out to him in any way at the time you know i'd only made two short films or you know a short film and like an hour long documentary and you know not neither of which has gotten to a wide audience had gotten into festivals and on various you know tv channels here and there but nothing i, I had no name certainly to speak of and um I'm a white guy, and I kind of just thought, you know, why isn't Spike Lee doing this film or with the Hudlin Brothers or something like that? And um, my friend Michael Solomon, who later became my partner on this film and the, the producer of it, he, um, we were just having lunch one day because I, I also had this, you know, like, kind of parallel magazine career I'd fallen into, magazine editing career when I moved to to New York from Chicago. And so I'd had a couple projects, film projects that were in some like nebulous state of trying to find money, but my heart wasn't completely in in them, but coupled with me, like sort of having a full time job for the first time in my life and actually making some money. And at lunch one day, Michael asked me, so what's the deal, like, with your, like, are you going to make another film? And there, were, like I said, there was this one I was, I, that I had been, he had hooked me up with this producer for this other film that I was just kind of withering on the vine. And I was like, yeah, there's, like, there's that, but the, the film I really want to make is on Melvin Van Peebles. And his, his jaw kind of dropped. He was like, Joe, I know Melvin really well. And Michael's a good friend, and we'd known each other for years. It had just never come up. You know, we'd never talked about this. So to make kind of a long story short, from what first started as Michael going to being my liaison to get to Melvin because his thing was always, you know, listen, Melvin, you got to come correct with Melvin to take you seriously. You're going to have to have like the money behind you and everything to do this right. And whenever I went out to try to get the money, they were saying, well, Melvin's on board, right? So it was a, kind of a vicious circle of, a, you know, Catch-22. So finally, after about a year of um, futile efforts to raise the money for the film, I was like, well, we just got to get Melvin on board. And that's what I asked Michael if he would want to come on as a producer. And he said, absolutely. And so he then brokered the introduction. And I didn't really know that, you know, really, I hadn't appreciated just how well Melvin, uh, Michael actually knew Melvin. So here, when I finally met him in March of 98, I had been, you know, I moved here in 91. Like I said, I'd been sort of sitting on this thing for a number of years before that and in my mind as long as melvin hadn't said no the project was still alive so um and I w- it was like one of the most you know nerve-wracking days of my life because we're sitting in this booth and i'm like all oh, prepared for my spiel of what i'm going to say to uh to melvin and i didn't even have to utter a word he just we're sitting in this diner and he looked at me and like turned to michael who was sitting next to melvin and said and melvin said your friend michael solomon has had my back for years and helped me out a lot of jams He, I read your proposal. He vouches for you. That's good enough for me. I'll do it. And it was like, it was, I didn't have to convince him at all. It was that sudden and that easy. And it was all based on the trust he'd had with Michael. So...
6: Yeah, that's pretty amazing. I was going to say, you know, he he comes across in interviews and obviously in the film he did and everything is a very independent guy. I mean, strong in his opinions, strong in his art and in his life and things like that. I mean, how is he to work with to actually well, sit down and put it together?
9: Well, absolutely. Because that's the thing. I was like, you know, he doesn't suffer fools gladly. So, he it it ended up being great because I know I know I know Melvin's had some run-ins with people that he's had relationships with before that that aren't there anymore. So I think we were, we had a, the fact that it was, you know, Michael and I, that Michael had the French, the, you know, the trust of a, of a friend, someone who's close to him, that I could come in with some distance and like keep a journalistic distance and some objectivity um, about it. And since I, you know, I was as the director, you know, the in creative control of it and, and Michael was, you know, facilitating making it happen as the producer, but we really were like on all the shoots together and everything. We were kind of a two man band. On the whole production, so it was a it was a very nice it was a really good dynamic, and um, I guess I just never did anything to really piss him off, other than step in his shot one time when we were shooting them, uh, shooting and filming his his uh, movie in France, and I was just kind of on the side and stepped into the shot, and I thought he was going to tear my head off. <laughs> but other than that, it really it was I, I I I can't even think of a of a testy moment. You know, maybe sometimes he was tired, and you know, just like oh, but he would always he was. He was a trooper. He was really game, and it just went on so long. You know, it, it was um, a lot of it was due to some, you know, garden variety independent filmmaking reasons, but a lot, most of it was really due to. I, mean, I also had a full time job the entire time I made the film, so that had something to do with it. It was eight, you know eight years. It, um, it literally coincided almost to the day of my eight years when I was the editor of Time Out New York magazine. I, we started shooting the film on the Saturday after my uh, of my first week there. And I left the week it opened um, at Film Forum in New York. But um, the thing was, Mel, you know, the very first thing I shot in the film was um, him rehearsing with the, that band that would become Roadkill that we show in the music section. And, you know, he's he's singing the Cheryl Crow song. All I want to do is have some fun. He's kind of like, he's trying to teach the piano player in the next room the words. And that was the very first thing we shot. And I thought, oh, wow, great. This is our ending. You know, Melvin, here's what he's doing now. He's going on, um, you know, going to, Perform with his band at these clubs, and then the next year he's going to France to shoot his first movie in fifteen years. And I, check it if it's not fifteen years, I sort of said that off the top of my head. And then I was like, um, oh great, there's our ending. <laughs> we got to shoot that. And he just kept doing things like that for the next, you know, five or six years. I was like, oh, we got to shoot that. There's our ending. That whole that whole thing that he was doing with Isaac Julian. We didn't we don't mention Isaac Julian in the film, but that whole make, making him the sculpture of him was for this exhibition and uh, accompanying film that the British video artist and filmmaker Isaac Julian is making on Black exploitation and uh, in it some he encounters this um, this replica you know st- inanimate statue of Melvin who comes to life so they had to create this 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 statue and we shot that whole process of them making you know from the casting to the actual creation of the sculpture. And that became sort of this gift from heaven that fell in our lap as it became, as, as you know, this narrative through line that carries the film. Yeah.
6: When he's had such a varied career. I mean, you talked about uh, your friends who were stockbrokers. I mean, he had Broadway plays, he had the films, you know, and all this stuff. When you went through and started to reach out to the various people that he had been in touch with over his lifetime, and doing the work, uh, what was the reaction? I mean, did you get doors slammed in your face, or did you get people going, "Oh yeah, you know, I'd love to talk about him"?
9: Oh yeah, totally that. No, no door slammed in our face at all. Everyone was really eager. You know, he hasn't. Well, if he's burned any bridges, which I'm sure he, if he has over the years, we, I didn't know who those people were. We didn't talk to them. You know, there was. Um, yeah, I don't know. That didn't really. Uh, no, no one had. Um, no one we spoke with had anything. Had anything really bad to say about him. And, um, you know, that could also be, you know, as a a artist in his older years now that people, you know, remember them more fondly and warmly than if, you know, if it was some of the battles he was fighting during Sweetback and stuff like that.
6: During your time, I mean, you said you know you you went and you read all these books and had to do all this research uh, b- before you put the proposal again and everything when you were making the film itself, what was something that came up that was a total surprise to you something that you learned about him that you d- didn't know the
9: the music stuff was the big was the big revelation you know i i, I didn't know that his um that he had had the a the influence, the impact that he had, you know, we learned that, you know, because it's almost conventional wisdom. You hear like people like Gil Scott Heron and the Last Poets are the linchpins for, or the um, the precursors for any, you know, any early rap artist. Kind of goes back to them as, as saying they were the primary key influences, and to have them go back and say it, it was Melvin, and hand in hand with that, to um, you know, to find out how you know, that stuff about how he actually taught himself to, to make music, that, that was pretty amazing. And which we then, you know, learned that that's how he did everything. I mean, we had this story about from the, my two friends who were the traders, you know, like he made up his own system for trading down there. He had, you know, never made a film. He kind of figured out, learned how to make films, but he didn't know any of the technical process of, uh, processes of doing so. And so that, that was one of them. Um, what was, uh, there, there were a few music, music was definitely, I, to me, the biggest, the biggest revelation I'd have to say, cause I knew, I knew of the music background, but I knew really nothing of it, you know, then actually going and hearing those records, you know, Bursell, I think it's a great record. I love that record.
6: When it comes to the music, obviously Wiz is, is Watermelon Man, which we're doing a, this episode. And he did that, that soundtrack and, you know, uh, love that's America and all that, you know, yeah. the. <laughs> the theme song and whatnot and in his conversations with you, when, when you got into talking about watermelon man and all that stuff, you know, do you remember how he came onto that project? How Columbia pictures said, yeah, come on on to the, uh, onto our studio and make this film.
9: Yes. And no, I, cause I'd hate to be the final source on this. Cause it's, it's yes, he told me and I, you know, I might, I might get wrong. I mean, there's Melvin has this, there's, there's one, one story Melvin all, you know, talked about a few times, which was, when he came back to America after making his first film, the French film, you know, La Permission, and and this film was, you know, feted at the San Francisco International Film Festival, I think, it, you know, one best film, and he was getting all these offers. I mean, people, he came back, people didn't think he was American, let alone black, and so he was getting all these offers to direct films, and Melvin thinks, as Melvin tells it, he wasn't going... To accept them, I, I I find this theory, I never quite understood it. It seems a little convoluted to me. But um, as he put it, th- that he didn't want to, he thought Hollywood, you're just speaking broadly, Hollywood, capital H, wanted to um, hire a black director in, basically in order to set them up to fail. And then to them to prove their like you know superiority like ah oh, see we shouldn't have done this we could you know to, to do it on some kind of project where they weren't going to entrust a big budget and Melvin just kept refusing these offers because he felt that he was just being set up to fail and to you know for them to prove this point and so he didn't do anything right away and eventually because and remember he said he comes back to America he makes a lot of permission in what nineteen. Help me out on the dates if, if you're fact checking this stuff because uh, I'm I'm really rusty on this. some of this. That,
6: that's he, in the late '60s. It's like '67, something like that.
9: Is La Permission right? Yeah. yeah. And Watermelon Man is what 70.
6: 70. Yeah. I think yeah. 70, 71. So, yeah.
9: So he he does those three records for AM in the interim, you know. So it's not, so he comes back he he comes back those, you know this triumphant return to the states as a filmmaker and doesn't make films. He goes into music and somehow you know gets this finagles this deal with a and m records makes three records and in that time eventually the script for watermelon got to him and that's when i guess he figured enough time had passed or whatever that now there was something that he could do that he felt he could do justice to that he would take on but there's there's that interim there where he claims he was being offered films and turning them down for that reason, that, that reason I don't fully understand it as he described it.
6: Well, I mean, it's interesting if you look at it in that period, because there really are not a lot of prominent black folks. I mean, in that era, in the in mid-late 60s, really the only one you could probably point to is Sidney Poitier, right? Right. So, right. I mean, one can understand where he's like, all right, this little suspect, if, if that's the only model we have is Sidney Poitier, it's like, all right. You know. Same
9: two on stage. That was the same thing that he, you know. Yeah. Which uh, they allude to, he and um, his producer on stage, Manny Eisenberg. You know, there was black theater, but it was you know, raising the sun and those kind of things. There was no real kind of black theater.
6: You yeah. know, the one story that he tells, and and, and I was wondering if there was uh, more to it, or if you can kind of explain it a little bit. Where he said that he got the script, and he told the studio, "Oh yeah, I'll do this," and then um, and then changed it.
9: That's the ending. Yeah, yeah, because the end, the ending. You know they wanted they wanted this whole thing to be like this you know this crazy bad dream sequence and he he wakes up and he realizes the folly of his bigotry and you know he's now like a a, a chastened white man and um so <laughs> as Melvin tells it it's um you know he kind of he kind of put on this you know this sort of exaggerated step and fetch it sort of character and would say you know oh yes. Yes, sir, Yes, sir. I'll shoot the ending that way because they had didn't see it in the shooting script, and um, and he never did. But he didn't. But he didn't show it to him until long after they had. So they had, you know, broken the set and, you know, and and struck it. So they could. So they couldn't do anything. They couldn't make him go back and reshoot it. So he was just like, "Yeah, I'll do it. I'll do it." And he said, "He just never. He just never shot it that way." He was just like, you know, I was I I wasn't going to have this guy wake up and one day be white and everything sort of okay again.
6: Well, I also heard that he said that the reason why he he changed the ending was he didn't like the idea that being black was a was a horrible nightmare.
9: Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, I guess, yeah, right. No, that's true. You just made me thinking whether, what was the original ending or whether that was the original ending or whether they wanted him. That's something I'm not really sure of, Robert, whether if, as the script called it, that he stayed black or they wanted him to shoot it that way Just to course, see how it played. And he was just like, I'm just not going to give him that option, you know? Because mm-hmm. that was my... I, as I understand it, it, it was that, that it was originally written as such, but they wanted this other option. He was just like, "No way! If I give him that option, he knows what they're going to do with it." But again, you're um, you are taxing some distant brain cells here.
6: <laughs> <laughs> the um, you know, when when you talk to him about this and sort of you know the fact that he did change the ending and what you know what were they over at Columbia like. Like, how was the reaction? Not only with the suits, but also the reaction once they put this film out in the theaters.
9: I really don't know. I mean, we we really used um, Watermelon Man as a kind of a transitional thing to get into Sweetback and his more personal stuff. You know,
7: mm-hmm.
9: we we did we didn't dwell a great deal on on Watermelon Man. I mean, there's so many things we could have made an entire film on each. You know, each of these sections of his life.
6: So. You know, talking about the documentary itself, you know, you you created it, and it took you took you almost a decade to actually finish the film, as you were saying. It was an eight-year process, yeah. and uh, even earlier, if you go back in terms of putting all the uh, research together. But when it came out, how did it work out for you? How did you feel about it, and how did you feel about the reaction to the film?
9: I was really – I was happy. I was really happy with it. I think the the reactions – the, re, the, the reactions from uh, from audiences who saw it first at the film festivals and then when it played kind of in its limited theatrical runs here in New York and at a couple other places were um, were really gratifying, I have to say I, and, and especially well sort of two different parts There's, in, on the big broad level, like this is mostly going like to film festivals when you're meeting people you know when you're meeting people directly after you know follow, uh, directly following the screening and you're getting initial feedback, it usually fell into one of two camps, which is um, like, oh my God, I'll, you know, sort of daunted by his, you know, just his skills and his, you know, can't never say no attitude. And they're just like, God, I'll I'll never be able to accomplish anything in my life. But it's a far greater reaction um, was just like, people are getting so inspired. Like, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to go home and get that novel out of the, my desk drawer that I've been, you know, has been moldering for a couple of years. And, you know, there's just no reason for me not to do anything. I don't want to try to do after watching what they just seen for 85 minutes and all, you know, everything he'd done with all the disadvantages he faced and all the obstacles that, um, that he faced strictly because of his color and upbringing, you know? Um, but then on another level, there were people, and these were either from contemporaries and some people really close to him, including like Mario, his son, who they would say, man, I thought I knew everything about Melvin Van Peebles, but I didn't know X, whether it was theater or Y about, you know, the music. And they were just really shocked that there was this character they, they already thought was, you know, pretty well rounded, was even more complex and dynamic than they'd originally thought. I, as far as Mario. I sat next. He sat next to me at the Los Angeles Film Festival, and he was he was like hitting my shoulder with the back of his hand like, throughout the entire movie, going, going. It's sort of like going, Are, seriously? Are you kidding me? You? And afterward, he told me um, people were shushing him actually behind. And afterward, he told me, "Man, there there was stuff in there. I thought for sure were lies that my dad had told me over there. that you, you know, you." found out to be true and corroborated so that (laughs) that was kind of gratifying i thought
6: you know what's funny is a few years later or even maybe about the time that your film came out mario made badass
9: what actually preceded the release of our film it did yeah
6: yeah and was wondering if in some way there was a connection there like he knew that you were making this or he was inspired off the fact that you were making something about his dad and and you know, how did that come together? Do you know?
9: Yeah, and I, I've wondered the same thing. Cause we interviewed him well before he ever made that film. It's just that he made the film in a year. <laughs> we made ours in eight. I was wondering the same thing when I first, when I first heard of that ass, he was making it, or maybe he had wrapped it, but it hadn't been released yet. I had heard he was making a documentary about his dad. i was like, what the fuck? Are you serious? And so I was like totally unnerved by that. And then, um, and then when I heard what it was, and this one is, once I actually saw it, I was like, nah, "That actually can only help," because I think Sony Sony Classics released it, and I thought this will just help to raise some awareness in advance of ours. So and whether that worked or not is totally impossible to say.
6: And in terms of it, I mean, when you saw it, what did you think? Did you think he did a pretty good job, given the
7: fact yeah. that
9: I thought I thought so. I thought so. You know, Mar- Mario tends to uh, like whenever when in our interviews with Mario, who who for the record was. Totally gracious, gave us a lot of time. Super guy, and really nice. But the conversation always kind of came back to Mario, <laughs> you know. <laughs> we were talking about his dad, and um, or I should say Mario kind of always led the discussion back to Mario. But um, in in and so yeah, so I thought in the movie he did. He, I was expecting that, and somehow it didn't. You know, it just it became like this really. I thought great homage to his dad. You know, maybe maybe he. Who am I to say on this? I mean. I thought maybe he made more just to kind of spice up the effect that the opening sex scene from Sweetback had on his life to kind of give it some, you know, more dramatic context. But like I say, who am I to say that he, he would know better than me. Certainly.
6: Yeah. Well, do you think that maybe for him, it's that, you know, he's living in the shadow of his father in some way, or he's, you know, I've got to make my own way kind of thing.
9: Yeah. I I, I, I mean, I think that's plausible, but at the same time, I don't get any sense that he has any resentment or regret about that. I think he's the first to champion his dad's exploits. And, and you know, by, by I guess, traditional or what, what we would, you know, in Hollywood consider measures of success, Mario has far exceeded Melvin. You know, he's made more movies as an actor and as a director, um, but he hasn't had the impact. The lasting impact that Melvin has, and I think Mario's always been really good about about giving um his dad props for that
6: when you were putting the film together, um how long was it, and what did you have to kind of cut out? Do you remember if there was anything that had to kind of go for time?
9: Oh um, like any film, sure, there are plenty of things that 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 we cut out, but I'm trying to think God my. I, should get, I need to get back in touch. I need to get in touch with my editor and jog my memory about this. Because, yeah, there were... I mean, we had a lot of early stuff that we had to leave out, and that's what influenced this idea that really came in the edit room to, to do this um, little fake newsreel thing to like get through his early years. So there was stuff in there. But, I mean, to, I don't think we talked about how... Just how he made those first few films ones he brought to Hollywood, which is when, you know, I want to make a 90 minute film. So he got like 90 minutes worth of film, <laughs> not realizing that you, you got to cut it and shoot. I mean, there's all these like, all these are great stories about that.
6: Is there anything related to uh, the documentary or working with Melvin that I didn't ask you about that?
9: Uh, oh, I'm sorry. I, here's one. I mean, some of them are on the, did you watch it on DVD or
6: no, I saw it on streaming.
9: Okay. Cause we put some of these on DVD extras, but, um, those those newscasts, you know, we do, we include the one about, um, the hookers and the homeless. And, you know, when he, when he, when he, he, he got this gig in his, in the eighties during his wall street era, that Metro media, which is now the Fox news channel here, they would have like, guest commentators on and they brought Melvin on to talk about wall street and kind of, you know, financial issues. Cause he was trading on wall street then. And it was in the summer. And, it was so. I don't know. The, I don't know if the audience has responded to it so much, but his bosses really liked it. The producer really liked it, and they brought him on for like he did like two weeks consecutive of guest of guest spots, guest commentaries, and they just <laughs> devolved into these like crazy because they're all these little produced like in a studio almost like skits like political socio political skits. Um, he, he had uh, they were just there's one is just is nuttier than the next. And we, we wanted to we wanted to have put a few more of those in, but we couldn't. But those we did include on the on the DVD extras, along with along with like fuller versions of some of the songs he was singing. There's a great version of "Losing My Religion" by REM that he does, but we'd have want to deal with the getting the clearing the license to it for the rights. That's just a lot. I have that on, on YouTube though. All these things are on my YouTube side. In fact, all these other all these other. Um, guest uh, um, TV commentaries and some of the other songs are actually up there.
6: Well, that'll give me a reason to go and pick up the DVD or to go over to the YouTube site because I love the commentary about the hookers and the homeless. I thought it was so good.
9: Wow, they're so funny. We were just cracking up. They're so good. And he, he, it's just like, how, how did he Shanghai the, the airwaves like this? I mean, it's unimaginable in this day and age that something like that could happen. And it wasn't that long ago, you know.
1: Yeah,
6: yeah. It's, it's so crazy. So good. What are you currently working on? What are what's uh, the, the next film for you that you're uh, in production on?
9: Well, I just had the world premiere in November of my uh, of a film I've been working on for only six years this time, uh, actually five, um, called "Revenge of the Meekons on the cult punk country band slash art collective, the Meekons. Do you know them?
6: No, I'm not familiar with them, but I'm looking forward to checking out the doc.
9: Yeah, the Mekons were—they were one of the nine million bands who who um, heard the Sex Pistols in England in 1977 and formed a punk band. But they're the only one from that era that has stayed together. And and uh, while their music couldn't be any further removed, and they still and they still play. Um, and, you know, record and and tour behind new records, and they have this, like, devoted audience that when they tour, they want to hear the new songs, you know, not the old hits, as it were, and while they couldn't be any further removed from punk music, they've managed to retain all the, you know, ideals of of what it was all about, They kind of put their money, or lack of money, where their mouth is, and, uh, yeah, so they're... Um, pretty interesting band a lot a lot of fun and really really um pretty kind of fascinating characters who at one point very early on in the production i was doing some i already started shooting but i was kind of going back to notes and research and there was this passage in this, in this record review guide it, it was trouser press this like punk zine from new york in the 80s um used to put out these periodic record reviewed guys record review guides and um in the lengthy, in the lengthy uh, entry on the Mekons, because they had like 20-something records at this point, and this was 10 years ago, there was a passage that said something to the effect of the Mekons have, you know, put, um, had a bewildering career of erratic releases, all made with tremendous heart that, I'm paraphrasing here, um, that um, have to do with take swipe at power or the abuse of power, that's it. They'd all take aim at power or the abuse of power, whether in in um whether in uh in in uh, society or politics, the boardroom, the, or the record business, or less frequently in the bedroom. Something to that effect, right? And I was reading that and I was like, Oh my god, those words could be describing that could be describing Melvin Van Peebles too. And I hadn't even made any kind of conscious connection between the two at the time. So I then that's when I started to kind of half facetiously refer to the Mekons as the white British eight person version of the Melvin Ven peoples.
5: <laughs>
9: <laughs> <laughs> and I think it holds up because they've also, they're another, they're a band that's, you know, they've made music, but all sorts of, they've gone from like, they were of, of punk. the origins of punk, which was, you know, all about DIY, you don't have to know how to play. They were notorious for being the band that could least play their instruments. And um, but then they discovered American country music and then kind of morphed into this country sound, but it was completely skewed and not really country. And then, like, folk. And then they started getting these other members who brought in different instrumentation that was, like, you know, North African and Middle Eastern and fiddles and really complex and dynamic, but also continued to make art collectively as the Mekons, but then also working with avant garde theater directors and. They did a group they wrote a group novel together and they collaborated with Kathy Ecker and made one of her books into an album that they later performed on stage. I was like, Oh my god, this is like Melvin's career. So <laughs> So I realized that I unknowingly had some kind of affinity to these polymaths who just do whatever they want and do it on their terms. That's called Revenge of the Mekons. And it's just it's only been in three festivals in the last month and uh, starting in February it's it'll start picking up. there's a number of uh, festivals in the late winter and spring that it's scheduled to play at. so
6: after the festivals, uh, what's the plan for release? Do you have any idea yet?
9: Well it's probably a little premature to say we've got a couple things pending that we're hoping to actually you know if not finalize, get more uh, clarity on in the, in the next week or so. It's just like Sundance is looming so all these people that we deal with will head off to Sundance in a week and a half. And then you, we won't hear from them again for two months. So it's like, try to do whatever we can now. Otherwise, we'll have to put it off till then. But it's looking like we're going to get a theatrical release in New York for sure. And then hopefully that will bode well for around the rest of the country.
6: Sounds good. If people want to find out more about the new film or about your work in general, where should they go?
9: Uh new film is com M-E-K-O-N-S. Movie. And there's also, you know, I have the MVP movie. Is also the website for the for the Melvin film, where they can buy really cool replica rated X by an all white jury T shirts from.
6: <laughs> we need those
9: exactly, as, as seen on the DVD cover. Excellent, S- especially if you're an extra large. We got a lot of those left. <laughs> <laughs>
6: Thanks, to Joe Angio, for coming on the show. And you can learn more about his documentary on Melvin Van Peebles and his current work at our website, projection-booth.com. We're back. We're talking about Watermelon Man. Actually, we're just sort of finishing it up here. And uh, beyond this documentary on Melvin Van Peebles, how to eat your watermelon in white company and enjoy it, did you enjoy it, gentlemen?
0: I enjoyed his documentary, if that's what the question is. Yes. Yes. It was good. It was interesting. Um, I... It was funny how much time they spent on Melvin's music. I didn't necessarily know that he had a music career. And then hearing his music, I was reminded a lot of Bill Cosby's music career, that kind of atonal singing that he would do at times. So it was kind of funny to hear that. And I kept thinking of the uh, Hooray for the Salvation Army band song that I love from Bill Cosby. Very nice. Have you had a chance to see this, uh, Mister Bill?
7: No, I have not. It's actually it's on my list of stuff to watch, which is just every day seems to get longer and longer. I'm it, it's it, I haven't watched it yet because it's like I've seen the Belvin films that I want to see, and you know I don't like I said my, I said I'm not a huge fan of, of uh, Sweet Sweetbacks, and I do like the Watermelon Man, but I mean I've done a, I did a fair amount of research for the Watermelon Man between our show and then you know obviously revisiting for this, so I'll get to it when I get to it. I'm really not that. Um, dying to know that much about him to be honest
6: well here's another film that i don't know if you've seen it's a documentary featuring melvin it's basically black film through his eyes it was called classified x and uh, i'm not sure if you saw that documentary either have you seen that
7: one i have not i've heard of it um but never had a chance to sit down and watch it
0: I watched it the other day. It split up into parts on YouTube, like this really low-quality version of it. Um, it was great. It was pretty much, you know, we've talked on the show about uh, Real Engine and the Celluloid Closet, these kind of films. It was very much like that, but looking at how African Americans were portrayed in films for a long time, I think it could have been like probably twice as long and a little bit more uh, in depth, especially looking at um, white people playing in blackface. I mean, there wasn't even that, um, Scene that they had, and it came from Hollywood with Al Jolson going up to heaven and them serving, you know, big slices of watermelon and all that kind of stuff. That whole musical number is just makes your jaw drop with uh, shock and shame as you watch it. But uh, it was it was interesting, um, but it wasn't as as great as it could have been. I think
6: I really liked it. I thought it was well done, and like you were saying, it, it does fit into sort of this um, pantheon of documentaries related to representation in films. So if you have an interest in that, it's, it's worth checking out. The, the other one related to Melvin, and this was uh, it came out actually, and I talked to Joe, you he heard in the interview with Joe Angio, that um, Badass, which is the movie that Mario did about his dad doing, creating Sweetback, Uh, came out actually before the documentary that he was able to finish, but he was shooting it way before Mario decided to make this film about his dad. So kind of a uh, timeline there. I just wanted to see if uh, either of you had seen badass and what did you think of it?
7: I have seen badass and it it was really interesting to look at it and see kind of like the the pseudo struggle that he had to make the film. And I think it's actually infinitely more interesting than the actual film is. Um, Yeah, no, it's a good watch.
0: Yeah, yeah. there's not too many Mario Van People films that are worth recommending, but I'd say that one is. Yeah, I really enjoyed it as
6: well. Um, as for Watermelon Man, there's only one small little section in there. It, it's interesting to sort of learn this back and forth in terms of what he was trying to do to make the film and whatnot. And um, not a lot of people know that Sweetback got its, I believe, final funding to be completed actually by Bill Cosby. So there you go, because that's mentioned in that film. So is there anything else we want to talk about when it comes to Melvin or uh, Watermelon Man?
7: Well there's there's a there's a section on Melvin in uh that stars documentary about the black exploitation and uh film well actually it's not really I forget I can't remember what it was called. We covered it on OTC a while ago. But it was a, a Starz documentary about African American Oh, was it like badass cinema? Badass cinema, that's exactly what it was. Um and there's a pretty there's a there's a nice little section on on Melvin in that. Um you know, it's probably only like four or five minutes, but they, they talk about, you know, uh, Sweet being kind of the, the film that kind of made the mold for it. And uh, it's actually – it's a pretty good little documentary if you're interested in learning more about like the the hitters involved in the black blaxploitation movement and kind of then how it kind of fizzled out and the kind of there was a rebirth in, in the 90s with some stuff. So, so that's a good little watch if you've never had a chance to check it out.
0: Yeah, Melvin's a very interesting dude. I've heard a lot of stories about him over the years. And it just uh, – that whole thing of him kind of, of – um, Talking about you know he was the progenitor of all black exploitation and you know that I invented Star Wars and all that before everybody kind of guy, it's just like wow you know I didn't know if that was an act or not and unfortunately it sounds like it's kind of not an act. It sounds like he's very 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 into self promotion and so it just Melvin sometimes just leaves a bad taste in my mouth even when I just think about him as a, a director or a human being. And Rob's over there crying. <laughs> No. Quit talking about Melvin. No, he's he's thinking about white chicks. We are going to take a break and play a preview for next week's show.
3: To pull off a job no one would ever dare, you need a team no one would ever believe. They did more to the syndicate in 27 minutes than anyone else ever did in 27 years. Paramount Pictures presents HIT. Starring Billy D. Williams as Nick, a top cop on the run. His hit team came in all sizes, all colors, and all pros. When they hit, they hurt. The target, nine Syndicate King. Time limit, 27 minutes to hit. Then split. Hit. Starring Billy D. Williams and Richard Pryor in television and Technicolor. Rated R. Under-17, not admitted without parent. That's right. We're back next week talking about the
6: 1973 Caper hit starring Lando Calrissian. That's right, Billy D. Williams. And Richard Pryor will take a look at black film once again all this month during Black History Month. And we also want to thank this week's special guests, Estelle Parsons and Joe Angio, for coming on the show. You'll find out more about their latest works at our website, projection-booth.com also want to thank this special guest host this week mr. Bill by force of outside the cinema for joining us now bill last time you were in the booth it was branded to kill last year oh, it was so long ago we got to have you back more often sir oh, but, sure. but Mike and I have been guests over there at outside the cinema and just wanted to ask what's the latest with OTC nation sir uh,
7: well I do want to say that outside the cinema covers black exploitation in African American cinema throughout the year we don't just cover it during February.
6: Oh, okay.
7: <laughs> oh, <laughs> creating battle lines, are we? I am actually. Not, I've said that before on the show too. I'm like, I hate when shows do Black History Month.
0: <laughs> well, we were going to do Women in History Month, but f- all those bitches. Wow. Wow.
7: So <laughs> going on on uh, outside the cinema, uh depending on when you decide when you guys listen mean listeners when you listen to this we are celebrating our sixth year getting started uh with our episode next week we're actually broadcasting live now on wednesday nights at 6 p.m our six-year anniversary show is our next episode that's coming up which i think will be out day after this releases or something like that so check that out if you don't know about us we are a cult cinema show of all kinds been around forever we've got over 300 episodes and somehow we managed to keep doing it i don't know how but Um, But the big thing that we really got coming up is our um, 2013 year-end review show, uh, which is very pertinent to the Projection Booth listeners because uh, Team PB is going to be taking part in that. So I'm really, actually really excited about it this year because we weren't able to do a roundtable last year for a 2013 review. So what we do is we each write our top ten list, and then we put it in together, assign points, and get an overall list from the four of us. And uh, I hope you guys are as excited about it as I am.
0: I am very excited. I'm also very nervous as far as are we going to have any sort of crossover between our four lists at all? We may. We may not. Who knows? We could have like the four-way ties and that's going to be airing live,
7: um, on, uh, what, what February, the first Wednesday of February.
0: That's right. That's the day that this episode drops February 5th, I believe. February
7: 5th. So there you go. Double or nothing. Double teabag that shit. Um, uh Rob you're, are you going to be able to be on with us do you know yet
6: I am not going to be able to be on because uh now that I live further west I will be at work so but I will out sick. I will send my list and my regards
7: Your job both of those things would work well for me <laughs> Just saying if you want to be part of our fake podcast our fake radio world you got to you got to got to give up on your real your real life commitments. My my real radio world? Yeah, your real life commitments are second to our fake radio world. That's right. <laughs> But either way, I'm sure you'll submit your list, and if you want to send an MP3 with uh, some explanations and some stuff, I'm sure we could make use of it and then make fun of you because you won't be there to defend yourself. That's
6: – which is always nice because usually it's Reverend Scott the week after making fun of us because we're not there to defend ourselves.
7: This is true. You just got to learn to not say anything that could be used in any way other than the way you meant to say it. That isn't going to happen. But, you know that. You <laughs> practice that. But yeah, no worries. I'm, I'm really excited to have you guys on the show again. We always have a good time. Um, and since I'm the ringmaster on my show, I can make, I can make all kinds of weird things happen.
0: I, I stay quite reserved when I'm here with you guys. Well, I'm looking forward to it. You know, Bill, I have to shamefully admit that today was the first day that I gave you guys a review over on iTunes. I thought that I had given you one years ago and I found that I hadn't. Don't feel bad because there's thousands of other people that have not
7: given us reviews either. So I appreciate that though. Thank you. So I give you a one star. It's what we deserve. <laughs> <laughs> In this day and age, where podcasting is watered down beyond belief, I can't see why any why anyone would give us more than one star
0: You're no Mark Maron, that's all I can say. You have the facial hair currently for it though. <laughs> Well, thank you Bill for coming on our show. Thanks to everyone for listening. And uh, you guys should go over and give outside the cinema some love over on iTunes. Maybe give the projection booth some love as well while you're there because it's easy enough to do. Just, and if you have projection booth love, not us. We don't <laughs> we don't want your love. We're like we're like a, a we're like a hooker. We just come in, do our business and then leave. Money's on the dresser. It is. So if you haven't downloaded our free app for your smartphone or your Kindle Fire, I've got a question for you what are you waiting for
7: outside the cinema to put out an app
0: oh the battle of the apps yeah i'm not that's not gonna happen
1: excuse me buddy but excuse me lady but you're fooling ain't you where can i be Santa man.
2: change
5: no but i don't imagine it would be immediate
8: i mean i don't think any intelligent negro expects it to be immediate don't be so militant
2: it's different i'm not militant i'm white i expect it to be immediate